This week's episode of I Was a Teenage Film Snob is not brought to you by $5 milkshakes, apple cigarettes, or long shots of women's fate. Teenage Film Snob. I'm James Chalmers, your friendly neighborhood film snob, and this week we're doing something different. Uh, we are taking a step away from top five lists, which is a bit of a rarity with this show. You know I like to talk about everyone's favorite movies, uh, but one thing I wanted to do since the inception of this show was talk about directors and really focus on uh, entire bodies of work, uh, work and have a deep dive, and now after 60 plus episodes, I'm finally getting around to it, uh, and this week we're kicking it off with a cracker. We've got a great director to talk about and an equally uh, fantastic guest. Uh, my guest this week has been on the show before, um, previously uh, only with uh, his podcasting partner, Bucky, uh, from the Midnight Terror Show. Sorry, the Midnight Terrors Show. I should have a second take there. Uh, <laughs> please welcome from the good old US of A. Uh, we call him Jason, but he goes by Diamond. Welcome, Diamond. Back to the show. CC, well, thank you for having me, buddy. Um, I've been looking forward to it. Um, we we have talked a little bit. You know, we did our kind of uh, top five films a little while mm. ago. Um, what has that been, like six months? Yeah, like it's longer than I thought it was. Like the last time you were on the show was episode 42, and this is going to be either episode 65 or 66, so it's been a, a good while. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I'm, no, I'm excited to be back. And, um, of course we love having you on, you know, our show. Um, I've done your show. That a... You like to kind of escape. Yeah. I was going to say, I've done your show a lot more than you guys have done my show. And that's not because I don't want you on my show. I just like not being the host. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, no, just, uh, you know, it, We've uh, we've had you on, and I know you like a little escape to talk about horror, um, which we were kind of talking about. Um, and you know, the last time that myself and Bucky were on um, your show, we had a good time just kind of doing top five favorite films, uh, which was which was fun. Uh, and and I I like to step away. I I love doing our horror conversations on Midnight Terrors. And uh, as much fun as that is, I still like. I'm just such a big movie buff as you are as well. I I still love the opportunity to kind of like step out and talk about other things that are not specifically horror. So so I'm excited. I'm I'm excited to be here with you. No, for sure. And uh, it's a rare treat to to get some one on one time with you because you guys are normally a package deal. So, and you know, again, nothing against Bucky. I love talking to that guy as well. We I was literally texting him before we went online this morning um, or this afternoon for you. Um, but it's it's a bit of a rarity to get you, yeah you solo. So uh, I've been looking forward to it. I know what we're going to talk about today is a huge passion of yours as well. So it's always cool hearing you guys talk about things that yeah, aren't absolutely. horror. Um, not that I don't like your show or horror either, because you guys have a fantastic podcast. Um, so, uh, but yeah, to be well, we appreciate it. Oh, a big fan, and you guys are always so lovely. You guys always shout me out, and uh, even in your fiftieth episode, you guys gave me a nice little shout out, which made me very happy. And then I bragged to my wife. Um, so you know, you gave me some fodder. <laughs> so you gave me some conversation fodder for the week, which was, and I definitely used it. Um, you guys have been doing some exciting and stuff. Like, and 
and so she was like, uh, these two nerds from the U.S. gave you a shout out and you're happy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, I think I think the joke was, I said it on a show I recorded with you guys recently, although from what I understand, that show doesn't exist anymore, so we'll have to do it again. Um, yeah, we have to re-record, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, look, let's be honest. We were talking about The Devil's Rejects. There's no unfortunate. We get to talk about that movie a second time. Great. Like, it'll be fine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but uh, there was a joke. It wasn't a joke. A comment that um, Kev said. He was like, oh, we have to shout out James for a second. He's been on the show a few times. He's, you know, his episodes have been really one, some of the funniest episodes we've done. That was it. Some of the funniest episodes we've done. Very nice compliment. I paused my podcast right there. I ran into the other room. I said, hey, two guys in America just said I'm the funniest guy in the world. And I said that to her every day for a week. Not what you said, <laughs> but like I just took it and ran with it. <laughs> Well, good. I'm glad you got to uh, enjoy that, and we always enjoy you. So, uh, yeah, thank you. It's always a, it's always an absolute treat to come on your show. Now, you guys have been doing some exciting stuff recently. You uh, went to the SC Horicon in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just did our first Horicon, um, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, we got to meet a lot of cool people. I got to meet Tyler Maine. So cool. uh, yeah, which. Uh, you know, of course, Tyler Mann plays uh, plays Michael Myers in the Rob Zombie Halloween movies, uh, but he is also Sabretooth uh, mm-hmm. in the original X-Men film. Uh, he's also in Troy. He's like the big badass dude in Troy um, that's like more massive than <laughs> anybody on the battlefield. And, uh, no, he was, he was really cool. Uh, we had a lot of fun with him. Um, I got to meet, uh, Tiffany Shepis, uh, who's, who's done a lot of like trauma, trauma movies. Uh, she did like Victor Crowley. If anybody's familiar with like the hatchet movies, I am, yeah, but she's more, yeah, but she's more recently in, um, Star Trek Picard. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm a big Star Trek fan. Uh, so I got to meet her, which was pretty exciting. Uh, so yeah, we, we had a lot of fun at the con, met a lot of cool people and, uh, our, our listenership like went through the roof in like two days. So it was, yeah, it was, it was really fun. And then we have a, we have a live event that we're, uh, doing here in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, on October nineteenth, so we're looking forward to that as well. So, yeah, we're 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 making some moves. We're making some money, making some moves, <laughs> <laughs> having some fun. So, yeah, when you guys told me you were doing a live show, my jaw hit the floor. I was so excited because all I've ever wanted to do since I started my show was find a way to do a live format, and I couldn't quite figure it out. And I'm still building numbers. Um, but when yeah, when you guys said that you know you get to go into like a, a bar and there's going to be a food truck and you guys are going to do like audience participation, I was like, geez, that's a that's a really cool way to do it. Um, yeah, and we we really have to give a lot of credit uh, to our buddy Mr. J, which if you you listen to the show, uh, Mr. J is uh, one of our favorite guests that we have on. He's uh, one of the earliest guests that we've had on. Uh, but he he did a lot of horror trivia and and does a lot of stuff at this this local bar that that we're going to, and so he just had like a, a bunch of like kind of connections, and we asked him. We were just like, you know, hey, like we're we're thinking about doing like this live thing. Like, what do you think? And he was like, oh, I'm all over it, dude. Like, nice. Let's let's do it. So, 
yeah, it's going to be fun. We're going to be doing like, we're going to be doing like trivia costume contests, like food truck, like, yeah. So, and, and recording, you know, while we're doing all of that. So it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. No, that's awesome. That's so cool. And uh, Mr. J, if I remember correctly, is the guy who he's a musician and is he the one who always puts your name into the lyrics of his songs? Yes. Yes. That would be, (laughs) (laughs) um, and he he also actually uh, wrote our our theme song for for the podcast. Oh, cool! Uh, so I always wondered that um, because I know that the art was done by by Kev's mum. Awesome art, by the way. Like that's really really cool. But it's, I always love it when you know friends and family come together to make a show. You know, kind of be more than it can be, which is awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. And just Mr. J. Mr. J. was one of like my earliest friends uh, that I always talked like horror and stuff with. And when I when I told him the kind of idea for the show or you know what we were shooting to do, I was like, "Hey, man!" And he's a musician; like he plays out all the time, and you know writes and produces his own stuff. And so I was just like, "Hey, man! Like you know we're doing this podcast and." we're looking for kind of like a little intro music or kind of like a theme song or whatever. And I was like, you know, can you, you know, give it a shot or, and I just kind of gave him a general idea of what I was, what I was looking for. And he was like, yeah. And so he sent me like one kind of early cut and I was like, yeah, I like it. Like, can we tweak this here and there? And, he sent me a second cut of it and I was like, perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. Um, so he's, he's a very cool guy, uh, very big fan of the show and, and just, just the sweetest dude ever. So, yeah, no, his, his appearance is always very memorable. Um, he's got such a, I think he's got such a unique voice. He's very softly spoken, but like very sharp. Like some of the, like, I know like you guys were very nice and like, James's episodes are very funny, but Mr. J's got a really wicked sense of humor. Like, he's very quick with his wit. Um, but he's just so on it. Like, I'm very loud and brash and obnoxious when I'm on your show. He's very softly spoken and just throws in nice little jokes. And it's, it always works very well for me. So, well, and, and the funny part is, is that when he's on the show, he is very kind of like soft spoken and everything like that. But when you meet him in person, it's the exact opposite. He is oh, so okay. loud. <laughs> like, just crazy and um even uh he and he and his wife uh came out to the to the con um and he was he was walking by our table uh every like five seconds and just screaming at the top of his lungs hey look it's the midnight terrors guys we've got to go over there and see them and it just yeah, so it's it's funny that he kind of like plays down on the show, um, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, in 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 life he's uh, he is very over the top and very hilarious, but like one of the sweetest dudes on the planet. He's he's so awesome. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, but it's nice to have a hype man in your corner, you know. Like that's that's what you want. Someone who believes in the show as much as you guys do, which is very very cool. Um, it is. So today we're talking about a director, um, and I remember this actually got suggested probably almost six months ago after we recorded that show where you and Kev came on for the first time, and Kevin was like, oh, Jason's a huge fan of blank director. You should talk to him about it. And I was like, yep, we'll definitely organize it. And then it took us six months because I didn't think, I, like, we had no way of contacting each other because you didn't really use Instagram, and you gave me a number, but I can't message out. Was, <clears throat> and it took yeah, until the creation well, and- of the Midnight Terrors Facebook group to be like, oh, yeah. 
Facebook. Like we could have used that oh, all this yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think both of us were just like, uh, duh, we're idiots. We could yeah. have been doing this. We're older guys, you know, we don't really focus on Facebook. Like we're both now like kind of mid to late thirties. We're not thinking about that anymore. We're just thinking about trying to stay alive. Uh, But uh, so we're talking about a director um, who I guess his most common, uh, his most common themes are, or, you know, kind of common things in films are gratuitous violence, um, people being locked up in trunks and, uh, and long shots of of women's feet. Uh, We are of course talking about, talking about Quentin Tarantino. Um, you got to start. Like, if you're talking about directors, that's where you start, right? Like Quentin Tarantino. Um, I've been a massive fan of him for going on 20 years. I think the first thing that really piqued my attention was the Pulp Fiction VHS cover in the video store when I was a kid. Um, that and, of course, the trailer for Kill Bill. Like, if you, I don't know if anyone seen, remembers the first trailer for Kill Bill Volume 1, but it's so unique and interesting and iconic. It just like stuck with me and I just became obsessed with that trailer on its own. Um, but where does your love for Tarantino begin? You know, um, because I I don't even remember how old I was when, when Pulp Fiction came out. Um, but obviously I was, I was too young to watch it at the time. For sure. Uh, but so, uh, you know, a few years later, once I kind of had some age on me, I watched Pulp Fiction. Um, and that was the first one that I saw. And having seen Pulp Fiction, I, it, the first time that I watched it, I kind of didn't know what to think about it. Mm. It was just, and, and I don't, I don't even know that I could say that when I watched it for the first time that I enjoyed it really. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was just kind of baffled by this thing that I just watched. Yeah. I was just kind of like, what, what is, what's going on here? So it was a few years later down the road uh, that I actually, you know, watched it again when I was a little older and a little wiser. And watching Pulp Fiction for the second time, I it clicked with me. I was just yep. like, man, <laughs> this thing is genius. Like, mm. this guy is just... Well, first of all, the director... And of course, Tarantino writes all of his shit. Um, I was like, the director and the writer is just out of his fucking mind. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Like completely out of his fucking mind, but it's so brilliant at the same time. So that was, a, and, and I think a lot of recognition for Tarantino for a lot of people was, you know, Pulp Fiction for the first time. So definitely, me seeing Pulp Fiction for the second time and realizing how great it was, uh, is, is where I kind of caught, caught my love story with him. Interesting. Um, I was going to ask you what your first Tarantino film was, but you, you went ahead and kind of started with that, which is awesome. Um, I have this theory, but I think you're about to prove me wrong. I have this theory that every person's favorite Tarantino film ends up being the first one they saw. But my understanding is that Pulp Fiction is not your favorite. Is that right? No, no. See, um, ah, theory, so, after all, after ten years, this theory has been debunked. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I still highly enjoy Pulp Fiction, um, and I highly enjoy all of Tarantino's films. Um, but my favorite, still to date, is Django Unchained. Um, and oh, in fact, I'm my so... dogs, 
I'm so glad you said that because I know I knew what I was going to call the episode before we record. I had an idea what I was going to call it. Um, and then when you said Django's your favorite, I'm like, oh my God, that's perfect. Because I was going to call the episode Diamond Unchained. And now that I know it's your favorite, I'm definitely calling it that. <laughs> um, no, in fact, it, it, my my dog's name is Django. Um, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So Django ended up, you know, after all the years uh, of, of, of all the films. I mean, I because I went back after after Pulp Fiction and of course I watched Reservoir Dogs mm-hmm. um, and Reservoir Dogs you know is fantastic and you know of course Kill Bill yes. volumes one and two are great um, you know I mean the, the only one and, and we can talk about it the only one that I, I didn't really kind of gel with was Jackie Brown okay Interesting. I rewatched Jackie Brown. I, I did all of Tarantino films earlier this year because I hadn't seen all of his films in a long time. Um, and I loved Jackie Brown the first time I watched it. And I will say, going back now, it's a, it's it's still very much a Tarantino film, but it's very different for his work because there's a lot more. It's a lot slower paced. There's no kind of cutting around, you know, with his time continuity. It's very kind of straightforward. And it probably lacks some of the excitement you get from a Tarantino film. It's still great, but it's just the least Tarantino Tarantino film, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, the least uh, Tarantino of the Tarantino films. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand what you're saying. And um, I, I've gone back and in in years recent, after of course loving every Tarantino, like going back, I was like, okay, I need to watch Jackie Brown again. Mm just to make sure that I'm just not off my rocker or like, I just wasn't getting it. Um, and I went back and watched Jackie Brown and Jackie Brown still, it's still good, but it's just not, I don't know. It's, I don't, I, I don't know what it is that doesn't sink in with me, but it's, it's just probably the one that didn't really sit with me or, or didn't really have an impact for me. Well, I guess it's not a Tarantino story. I think he did end up writing the scripts, but it's based on the James Elroy book, so it's not an original um, Tarantino idea. That might be. That, I think that's probably a big part okay, of it. Okay, so maybe yes. Okay, so maybe that's what. Yeah, um, I think that's because it was his. You know, it was his chance to kind of do a, a Pam Grier kind of exploitation film from the seventies, like with Pam Grier. Sure. You know, yeah. Um, so, but instead of kind of doing his own thing, he kind of went with the book, which I don't think is a bad choice. And I always think it's interesting when directors do try something different because he had these two massive hits, like Reservoir Dogs, um, which got talked about a lot in my film class when I studied film because they're like, it's a heist movie where you never see the heist. And that was considered interesting when you're, when you're 16 years old studying film. Um, <laughs> so the, the Reservoir Dogs had a huge, um, a huge impact. And then obviously Pulp Fiction just showed you could just do basically an action film that's driven by dialogue with almost no action in it and make it work. So I think Jackie Brown was just not what people were expecting his next movie to be. Um, but it's interesting because Jackie Brown happens and it's probably got the least amount of response from, from the audience. And then seven years go by and then he comes back with Kill Bill, which arguably I say I would say really influences his style moving forward. Because after after Kill Bill, like every, like that's to me the real the first real Tarantino film. Like you see Reservoir Dogs, you see Pulp Fiction kind of him doing the dialogue thing, but then Kill Bill is like visually, stylistically, that's when Tarantino loses his mind, I think, you know, just goes crazy. Well, yeah, and I mean, uh, 
kind of before we get a little too far. I know I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay because we. I'm all about bouncing around. It's fine. I'm having this conversation um, Tarantino style, out of order. Just <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's so that's actually something I was about to touch on. Um, no, but uh, so watching, going back after watching, um, after watching, you know, some of his films, going back and watching Reservoir Dogs. One of the genius things about Reservoir Dogs is that it's it all happens 90% of it is one room. Yeah. Like they're yeah. just in that warehouse and all of this drama and everything happens. I mean, there's, you've got some scenes in the car um, and you got the scene at the diner and everything. But I mean, the majority of the film is just in that one room. And when, when I went back and kind of looked at that and realize kind of how genius it was yeah because he in now it was it was definitely done out of necessity mm. i mean it was like you know i don't have this huge budget and i i can't be you know going to 20 different locations and doing all these crazy action sequences and stuff like that he just didn't have the budget for it but i mean how great is that movie and it's only in one room. And no, dude, absolutely. Michael Madsen, Michael Madsen <laughs> cutting the guy's ear off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's still so iconic. Like listening to Stuck in the Middle with you and it just torturing the shit out of that poor guy. Uh, and, and just having a good time with it. I mean, he is enjoying every second of it. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. I mean that you know, Reservoir Dogs uh, still sits very, um, still sits very hard with me because because it's it's so it's so minimalistic, but still so so effective. No, absolutely. And you bring up an extra, a really good point because you mentioned stuck in the middle with you, like. If you know, if we talk about time jumping and dialogue and stuff, we, when we talk about Tarantino, you can't talk about him and not discuss music as well. Like for, with the exception of you know, Hateful Eight, which you know d doesn't really use it, just uses all score from Ennio Morricone. Like every movie is so constructed around the soundtrack that he's handpicked himself. Like I remember listening to an interview with him talking about Kill Bill, um, and you know, there's that scene in Kill Bill with the five, six, seven, eights where they're playing that surf, that kind of Japanese surf rock music. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, I was on my way out of Japan. I went to a record store and they're playing a record and I heard this song and I was like, who's this band? And like, oh, the five, six, seven, eights. He goes, can I buy the record? And like, oh, we only have the one CD. It's the shop copy. And Quentin was like, no, you understand. I'm leaving Japan now. I need this CD. Can I buy the store copy? Call your manager. I need to buy it. Um, right. <laughs> but the music choices are so unusual. And I think, yeah, Reservoir Dogs in particular, like once I saw that scene, I was like, oh, what a great idea to take a really pleasant piece of music that you don't associate with any kind of negativity at all and put it against the stark contrast of the most visually horrible thing you can think of <laughs> like that's so yeah. tarantino <laughs> well, like cutting his ear off and then throwing the gasoline on him yeah. like which god i mean a, an open wound with gasoline in it i <laughs> i can't even imagine how that yeah. feels um 
but, but yeah, I mean, well, and, and his music choices too, uh, like, uh, you know, if you listen to the soundtrack for, for Django, yes. like there's so much of this, like, you know, Western, like kind of country, like soundtrack to it. Mm. But then at certain, at certain times you've got black coffins and then, uh, you know, at the end, uh, he goes in to, you know, take out the, take out the family or whatever. With the James um, Brown track, the payback? Uh, no, it's, it's Tupac. <laughs> yeah. It's a Tupac James Brown, like mashup. It's got the really yeah, funky, exactly. the really funky, uh, is it wrong if I want to get it yeah. on until I die? That one? Yeah. 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 It's, it's just such a crazy, like, cause the movie up until that point has all this spaghetti Western kind of, uh, you know, just sound to it. And then, you know, when Django comes to get his revenge, <laughs> kick on the Tupac and James Brown. <laughs> like, oh, I am it's not, so crazy. It's, I am it's so good. <laughs> I'm not too proud to admit that in my, after that movie came out, I drove around with my windows down with that song on repeat. Like it was the ultimate driving. Oh, song. Yeah. Like it was the closest to a badass I could ever feel just with that track on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, oh, uh, but yeah. yeah, so, so, you know, definitely going and, and I agree with you. I think, you know, after Pulp Fiction, uh, you know, there was Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown, which is kind of, you know, nobody knew kind of really how to take it or maybe it wasn't his, his best success or whatever, but yeah, I mean, kill bill because it's like, I grew up, uh, with my dad, like my dad and I would watch movies all the time together. Uh, Mm. and we, we loved, you know, kind of standard stuff. Like we, we loved Star Wars. We loved Indiana Jones, you know, that kind of thing. But also we would get up on like, you know, Saturday mornings and there would be these like, you know, cheesy like Kung Fu films on. Mm. And so when Kill Bill came out, that mashup, especially with Kill Bill Volume 2, that mashup of the it kind of current cinematic glory, but also this like, you know, 60s, 70s, uh, you know, kind of Bruce Lee style, uh, you know, old kind of exploitation, you know, Kung Fu films. Like it was, it was just crazy interesting mm. to me. Well, yeah, Kill Bill is definitely one that piqued my interest. It was my first Tarantino film and it still is my favorite. Um, I was, put both two together because it is one movie um he just released it separately yeah. because it was so long um but that was the first one that i was really like it was i think it was the first time i realized i was into movies so i knew that i liked movies i liked going to the video store but i had this burning passion like when it, the trailer came out i was talking about it at the start i was like i had this burning desire to go and see it i could not stop thinking about that trailer just the the battle with that honor of humanity you know that guitar riff and like the trumpets and like everything, all the music in the trailer and just, like, some of the cheesy lines, like, you know, what is it, sweet Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords? Like, just little <laughs> bits. I was like, what is this movie? I was like, what is this? It's, it, I have no idea what this is, and it took me a while to get to it. I remember I eventually swiped a copy from the video store I worked at because um, I was underage, but I was like, I need to see Kill Bill. 
because it was, it was R over here and RR is a little bit stronger. You yeah. have to be 18 or older in Australia to see an R film. Part two was MA, which means you can be 15. So it's like, this is really frustrating that I have, I'm legally allowed to see the sequel, but not the first one. Um, so I ended up swiping a copy and just, and watching it. I think I watched it like four times that week. It was just incredible and yeah. nothing like I'd seen before. And just like the color palette and the idea to use animation and the idea to, and like, what would become a bit of a trend later on with uh, with Inglorious Bastards? The idea to have the film not just in English the entire time, like all these weird little decisions, nothing I'd seen before. Like there were three movies that really changed my life. The first one was Clerks, the second one was uh, was Desperado, and the third one was Kill Bill. Um, and the, this flick is just—it's insane. Like Kill Bill is insane. Well, it's it's funny that you it's funny that you say that like that little list that you just gave mm. um, are like three of my life changers too. I yeah. mean, the the first time I saw Clerks, um, I mean that blew my mind. Like I had never I had never seen something like it before. I had never seen something that made me laugh like that before, mm. and I had never just seen something so different like that before. And then when you jump to Desperado, same thing, mm. which. Um, our, our good buddy, Robert Rodriguez, who we can not really talk about Tarantino without mentioning him. I was going to say a long time um, Tarantino collaborator, um, is Robert Rodriguez for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the first time I saw Desperado, uh, I mean, and that was my first introduction to, uh, Selma Hayek, who is a, Oh God, beast of a woman. Uh, <laughs> Anyone who's seen from Dust Till Dawn can attest to that. Um, or Dogma. Well, and, and, and there you go. I mean, you got Tarantino writing on on uh, from Dust Till Dawn. Uh, mm. You know, and and working with Rodriguez on that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, Desperado was a big one for me, and then yeah, Kill Bill. Um, mm. And then I still remember, like, because everyone. As, as we're talking about Tarantino's, uh, you know, kind of filmography, everyone forgets about Death Proof. I love Death Proof. I love Death Proof, too. I so, didn't get it the first time. I, I got 90% of it. The ending, I was like, what is this? Why did it end that way? But now, like, I've watched that movie at least a dozen times. That ending is exactly the way that movie should end. It's such a – it's so good. <laughs> that, that same thing happened to me, so – um, I actually, uh, went with, uh, with my wife at the time, uh, you know, Bucky's sister. So we went and saw the grindhouse double feature, uh. um, because when it was, I don't know if they did the same thing, uh, in Australia, but in the U S like you went to see it in the theater and it was presented as an old school grindhouse film. So basically you got, um, planet terror. And then after Planet Terror, you got Death Proof, which Planet Terror was Rodriguez's zombie movie. Mm. Um, and then which is afterward, great. you got, yep, which is great. And then, you know, they had like a little intermission. And then, you know, you came back and you got Death Proof. We, um, and, we did not get the Grindhouse treatment in Australia. In fact, we did not get a wide theatrical release for either of those movies. Independent movie houses got them, but like the Big Sims did not get them. And I was like, it's the new Quentin Tarantino film. What are you talking about? He's the biggest director in the world right now. Why is this movie not coming in? Yeah. This? And I could be remembering it wrong. Like maybe they did just some screenings of Death Proof, but I remember it being impossible for me to find it. Um, and granted, I didn't have the resources I had now. I was pretty fresh. I was pretty green with my movie loving. So I was only going to sure. sit up around the corner. But 
I remember just like scouring and could not find it anywhere. Um, and I was, and I, you know what? I was at uni at that point. I was at university, so I did have a car. I did have the means. I just couldn't find it. I, it was just independent theater houses. So, um, well, and even even in the U.S., like after it after it left the theater, which it it didn't have that long of a theater run. It it might have been maybe three to four weeks. It, it wasn't very long at all. Um, but it's a three-hour movie with fake trailers and like. Oh, and Three. God, the fake trailers. Well, so now good. Eli Roth is doing Thanksgiving based on that trailer from, you know, 15 yeah. years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then uh, we got the the Danny Trejo. Uh, machete? Yeah, Machete 1 and 2, which were both fantastic. Oh, that um, first one where I remember, I remember, I was like, I know that I'm a fan of this stuff. The, the moment in Machete where he runs out through the hospital, he jumps out a window and swings off someone's intestines. I was like, yes. all right. This is the genre for me. <laughs> this is my thing. Yep, yep. Nope. I was going to say that's one of my favorite scenes from it. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, just just and even when it came out, like so I remember watching you know, the first the first half of course Planet Terror and I thought Planet Terror was brilliant. I mm. loved it. Um and then watching Death Proof afterwards cuz it was the second one. Um, I, I remember watching it and I was just kind of a little confused by it and just like, I just didn't know what to think about it. Um, and then later it came out when it came out on, you know, DVD release or whatever, uh, you couldn't get like the pair together. It, it was, they separated them. So you could yeah. either buy death proof or planetary. Um, but I, I watched death proof again. And I was like, wow, I missed the whole point the first time. Like, this movie is fan-fucking-tastic. Yeah. Well, I remember when it came out, I, I bought them both the same day. Um, and this was, like, when DVDs were expensive. I think I paid 30 bucks for each DVD, so $60 on two DVDs, because I was like, I need to watch them. And they were the extended cuts, because both film because the way that those films are designed is they're missing stuff, which I really like is because it's meant to be like an old grindhouse film. There's scratches, exactly. you know, on the, on the film, there's reels missing, but the extended cuts fill in a lot of the blanks. So like um, Rodriguez actually did shoot the entire film pretty much. And then just cut things out. Whereas Tarantino, I think deliberately didn't write scenes so that it would be a bit confusing, but um, you can only get the two hour cuts. Um, and it's, I was looking at actually online last night cause I did some, some Blu-ray ordering we're finally getting the Grindhouse double feature on Blu-ray this year in Australia for what I think is the first time. Um, I ordered mine from Canada nice. 15 years ago because I was like, I couldn't wait. I was like, I need to see this double feature. Um, so Canada yeah. did a region-free version. I was like, great, I'll order that in. And uh, it's a really good time at the movies. Like, it's not for everyone, yeah. but if you like silly, violent, gory films, like, it's a lot of fun. Well, which especially uh, with uh, with us doing our show, you know, Midnight Terrors, um, it, it, we like all different versions of like horror. So we love horror comedy. Um, so watching watching Planet Terror, especially, mm-hmm. is it was just like amazing. I was just like, oh, this is the funniest, craziest, weirdest grossest thing ever <laughs> it had uh, the so single I, I loved it i think it has the single greatest movie poster of all time it's just rose mcgowan standing there and instead of two legs one is a machine gun she's wearing hot pants and it's shot in a silhouette <laughs> it's like <Yeah. laughs> it's so simple and so ridiculous but like yeah 
you don't need to like you know, we've talked about our superhero films are off mic plenty of times. Like I love the Marvel films, the DC films, but the posters tend to leave a lot to be desired. Like is a lot right. of just CGI face, like kind of like Photoshop faces in a in a crowd or whatever. That Planet Terror poster, so simple, so wonderful. It's a girl with a machine gun for a leg. Go. Yep. And that's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. um, we did skip over. Pulls, oh, sorry. Don't mind how she pulls the trigger. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Um, or like how she can, you know, use a rocket launcher to like launch herself over a wall, but it doesn't hurt her. Like, <laughs> right. Um, we did but jump over. We did jump over a Rodriguez Tarantino collaboration, and that is, of course, um, Sin City. Uh, it was a Rodriguez film, oh, but Tarantino yes. did come in and shoot shoot a sequence or two. It was his first time using digital. I remember it was a big deal because Tarantino has been like very, a staunch anti-digital filmmaker up until I think even um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is still on film stock, I think, if, I, if I'm correctly. He won't go uh, Yeah, I do believe you're right about that, yeah. Yeah. I know Hateful Eight definitely yeah. was film stock because he used like the Panavision, like the 70 millimeter wide. So, like, that was a big part of his promotion of that movie, so. Yeah, Tarantino uh, tends to steer away, or I don't know that he's ever used digital. I I think he always films on actual film. Mm. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Sin City, uh, man, I remember seeing that thing too. That one blew my freaking mind, and I I wasn't aware of the graphic novel mm. when the movie came out. So I I went into the movie cold, not kind of really knowing what I was getting into. Um, but, you know, seeing the cast list, you know, Clive Owen, Elijah Wood, Mickey Rourke, uh, you know, Jessica Alba. Bruce Willis, I, I mean, I, like I, Michael Madsen. Like, yeah, like everybody and their fucking mom was in that movie. And mm. that movie is, is still one of my favorites. I love that movie. So that much. one needs to actually and, get added. That needs to get added to my list. I mentioned Desperado, Kill Bill, and Close before, but Sin City also really changed how I looked at films. That was the first movie I ever saw by myself. I could not convince anyone to go and see that movie with me. Like none of my friends were interested because I was becoming the film guy. And I'm like, oh, we don't right. know. Like James is <laughs> pretty weird stuff now. I'm like, no, it's going to be great. I can tell. And no one wanted to see it. I remember I said to my mom one night because it was coming to the end of its run. I was like, look, I really want to see Sin City. I know my brother and sister are underage, so you could look after them. Can I just go to the movies by myself? Is that cool and she's like yeah i'll drop you off i was like sweet why didn't i ever think of this before the first time i went to the theater to the movie cinema by myself the theater was empty and it was like a biblical experience for me i was like holy christ this is cinema and i'm sure most people yeah. don't think of sin city as cinema but it was for me well one of the one of the coolest things for me like i i just thought it was insanely interesting and uh it, it just looked cool all yeah. around. Um, and the choices just to be in black and white for, you know, certain segments and then just throw in a splash of color on specific things. Like I thought it was really cool. And then after seeing, after seeing the movie and loving it so much, I was like, okay, well, I've got to go pick up this graphic novel. So yeah. I went out and picked up the graphic novel. And as I'm looking through the graphic novel, I'm like, Man, like this movie is literally shot for shot. I mean, like you're looking at the 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 pages mm. of this novel, and I mean, it's it's exactly what the movie looks like. And I just yeah. thought that that was so cool that it, you know because uh, 
as you know, a big part of, you know, filming a movie is, is storyboarding and setting up the shots and everything. And it was just like, they didn't have to storyboard shit. <laughs> yeah. I think Rodriguez even said, he goes, we didn't storyboard it. Like Frank Miller did the storyboards for us 20 years ago. So we'll just use the graphic novel. And I think they literally yeah. just pulled the pages out and use that as a storyboard. And you can tell like, there's that shot where I think it's Clive Owen um, falls into the tar pit and you just see the hand yeah. come in to pick him up. It's like, that is it. That is literally an image from the comic book. Like, um, it is yeah. the most comic accurate adaptation of all time. Like it's literally, you couldn't oh, get yeah, more accurate. I would, yeah, I would one hundred percent agree with that. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and I liked the sequel as well. I know we're not really talking about Rodriguez, but I liked Sin City too. Like there are seven graphic novels, um, and I know he condensed a few of them into the first movie. There's so much more storytelling to do with that. He could do, definitely do more Sin City if he wanted to. Um, I don't yeah, know why I it to... didn't. Yeah, go on. I need to go back and watch a Dame to Kill uh, because I've I've seen it maybe once or twice, uh, and of course it didn't have the same kind of wow factor as the mm. first one because the first one was so unique at the time. So seeing the second one, especially because it was so many years behind the first one, yeah, that you know there's there were some other kind of copies because didn't uh, didn't they do the spirit in between there? So Frank Miller, after doing Sin City, was like, oh, I would like to direct a movie, and he did The Spirit. I think he directed it as well. I haven't seen The Spirit. I think I've seen maybe 10 minutes of it. It was not received very well. Um, no, and I'd, I'd tell you to stay away, to be honest. <laughs> um, but no, then, I you know, watched like, it in a long time. But. but then, you know, Snyder did 300, which is another Frank Miller adaptation, and that's also an excellent yep. film. Like. It's not. I don't think it's the stories. I think it's just how it was approached. And yeah, like Frank Miller's not a movie director. Like he's, you know, he'd never directed a film. He got a co-director credit on Sin City because Rodriguez refused to take Frank Miller's name off it. But the guy's right. never really worked as a like. He's got no experience as a film director. Of course, the spirit didn't work. Like, um, yeah, yeah, and and you can tell it just doesn't have the same kind of like touch to it. I, but I'd, I'd still have to check it out. I've never seen. I'd still give it a, a go because I'm a completionist and. As as I've said time and time again on the show, there are no bad movies, but um, from what I understand, the spirit is pretty tough. Yeah, it's 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 a little rough, but uh, but no, yeah. So Sin City, I you're right. I always forget about that being in kind of uh the repertoire, and then uh, I I also love you know we've mentioned from Dust Till Dawn, you know, yes. Tarantino wrote that one, and and Rodriguez directed it, and uh. Tarantino, <laughs> even as even as much as I am not the biggest fan of him putting himself into certain movies, I was going to ask uh, about this. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think from, I think from Dust Till Dawn worked. Yes. For for the character that he played, and the way that it was written, I I think that he wrote that character kind of for himself. Yeah, absolutely. I think think that that's the reason that he worked in that character. Now there's, uh, you know, there's other things. So like, like impulse fiction, uh, the Bonnie situation. (laughs) Uh, Jimmy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think he did well there, you know, and I I like him in Reservoir Dogs as well. I I like him in, I like that, that performance as well. I I think the one that people always think about is Django. That's the one I think people find is the most. Yeah. That's, (laughs) that's the worst one. Yeah. I don't mind Especially you being, especially you being a Aussie. 
Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I wasn't offended because I know people are like, oh, that's so offensive. I'm like, first of all, I think it's really hard to offend an Australian. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of uptight Australians, but we're pretty chill, most of us. And I think we can all take a joke. I was like, yeah, he's just doing a weird voice. Like, I didn't bother me at all. Um, but I know that's the one that people right. dislike the most, I think. Um, and the Death Proof one, I, don't, I always forget he plays Warren and Death Proof. I'm like, oh, yeah, Quentin's in this one. Um, and yeah. he's, also, he's also the guy with the drippy balls in, in Planet Terror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, Dust so, Till Dawn's great. I, mean, I he, love he Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, I, I love From Dust Till Dawn, too. Uh, and actually, Bucky, uh, you know, we've done an episode on the show, and he, he had never seen it. And oh, I so didn't I know you guys like, done that. I'm going to listen to your episode now. Um, yeah, I'm – yeah. So he had never he had never seen from Dust Till Dawn, and I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Mm. Like, so <laughs> um, he came over to the house one night. We watched it together, and you know, by the time he was done with it, and which uh, Bucky hasn't watched much Tarantino at all. If, not well, none from what I understand. He's like, "I've got to go back and watch it from the start." I was like, "Don't do that." No, he wants to watch him yeah. in reverse. He wants to watch him in reverse order. He's like, I'll start with the newest one and go back. And you and I were both like, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We did have that. that conversation. I was like, do not start with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, I was like, and, yeah. I would. I, my recommendation with Tarantino is like, just look at the posters and see which one jumps out of you and go with there. You can't go wrong. Like, there's no bad movie to start with because your first one was Pulp Fiction. My first one was Kill Bill. We both love all of his movies. I knew a guy whose yeah. first one was Hateful Eight, and that was his favorite movie, and that's why. That's why the theory. Oh, dude, generates. Hateful Eight is fucking fantastic too. Great, but like so late in the filmography. But then he went back and watched everything and loved it as well. Like I just, yeah, I don't think there's a bad place to start. But I wouldn't start with Want to Play. I wouldn't. I wouldn't start with with Once Time in Hollywood, and I probably wouldn't start with Jackie Brown either. Um, not that they're bad films. Yeah, they're just yeah. uh, they're not the most definitive of his work for sure. Exactly, and uh, yeah, I, that's that's what I. Ch- tried to tell Bucky I was like I was like listen man like if you want to get into his work like either either go Pulp Fiction or go like Kill Bill so that you get like you get what he's doing or get the exciting side of it or uh, you know get a taste for what he's doing Mm. and then go explore elsewhere Mm. but these are kind of if you want to get into his work these are good ones to kind of kind of start out with, but, uh, but yeah, when, when he watched, uh, from dusk till dawn, I mean, he came out of it he was just like, man, this movie's fucking awesome. And I was like, yeah, well, I told you. <laughs> that movie opens up such a, a can of worms because you can, yes, you can start going down the Tarantino wormhole and check out all of his stuff, but you can also go down the Rodriguez path and Rodriguez has made so many movies and they're all so unique. Exactly. Like his, you know, kind of, um, Mariachi trilogy is brilliant. Like even Once Upon a Time in Mexico, like it's not the best of the trilogy, but it's still really good. Like I don't know about you, man, but I was a kid when those Spy Kids films came out. Those first three Spy Kids films are great. Like they're really fun. Yeah, they are. Um, and for the longest time, I, f- I forgot that he did those. Um, I love my but... favorite thing is that Uncle Machete in Spy Kids is the same Machete in in the Machete movies. I'm like. Yep. What yeah. a great, like, what a bizarre Easter egg that you wouldn't see in any other, like, film series. It's like, oh, you know that guy who swung on someone's intestines? He's their uncle. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but no, so, like, I mean, Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs is great, you know. Um, so getting a little deeper, I mean, like, uh, when I got into, like, Kill Bill, 
like again i was saying that you know me and my dad loved these like kung fu films um and and again we talked about his soundtracking like just it it was just so crazy and like some of the stuff that's genius about kill bill especially volume two Mm. like one of my favorite fight scenes in film history is the is the two of them in the trailer yes with the samurai swords and just the genius of the fact that (laughs) they're trying to pull the swords out (laughs) in the hallway and they can't get the swords out because the hallway is not big enough for them to actually like unsheath their swords and like it just that kind of thinking yeah like i mean who who thinks about that shit like okay i want to have a samurai sword fight in a fucking (laughs) single wide trailer (laughs) (laughs) and the problem that they're gonna have is they can't get their swords out because the trailer's not wide enough like, or even the decision to have her break off the tv antenna and that's her sword Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, even um, even in the first Kill Bill, after uh, she fights for Nita, mm. you know, at the, at the very beginning, and her daughter, you know, walks in and sees uh, her Beatrix killer mother, she looks at the daughter and she's like, you know what, like in a couple of years, you're probably going to be sour about this. And if you are, I'll be waiting on you. And I'm just like, whoa, dude. <laughs> yeah, like, because she's, she's the hero of this film, but, like, she's not nice. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, you try, not at like all. Like, you, and you try to, like, I was seven, 16 or 17 when I watched I was trying to rationalize. I'm like, no, she's a hero. But, like, she is not, and she is, like, rightfully so sour. Like, the thing about Kill Bill, and we, I don't like to use this word on the podcast too often, but Kill Bill is, a, is like, a rape revenge film. Like, first she gets, a, like, they yeah. try to beat her up, and then, like, she is abused while she's in that coma. Like, that is a tough story to sell to a mainstream audience. And it's so well executed and so entertaining. I forget about all the horrible stuff in it. Because um, I, like, yeah, I'll watch it, like, regularly with my wife. I, I, it was the first R-rated film I showed my sister when she turned 18. I was like, you got to watch Kill Bill. I completely forgot about all that horrible stuff because it's just so entertaining and well done. Um that you kind of forget that there's a really like nasty core to that movie. Yeah. I, I mean, Tarantino has a habit of doing that. Like, mm. uh, just making things so rough, but mm. it, it's got a point to it. Well, like, know, I'm sure we'll get like to it, of, but in, I was thinking about the dog scene in Django. The first time I saw yeah, that, I was, that was... That's exactly where I was going to go. <laughs> that was one of the... Like, I, and I've watched a lot of a lot of nasty films, as I'm sure you have. Like, being a horror fans, we kind of... Especially when you're younger, you push yourself to the extreme. You're like, yeah, I'll watch those human centipede films. How bad could it be? Sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, you'll watch nasty stuff. But even that scene in Django, like, that had me kind of in silence. I was just like, like I was just like, oh, my God. Like, what? This is so intense. Um yeah, he do, he doesn't shy away from the nasty stuff. He just happens to do it in such a stylish way. You forget about how horrible the things are, you know, in his movies. Yeah, and I mean, uh, it's it was funny too because uh, uh, when the first when the first John Wick came out, mm. I was I was telling 
I was telling Bucky's sister, I was like, listen, you got to watch John Wick. It's fucking cool. She loves Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm. I was like, you got to watch this shit. Like, it's it's amazing. And she is sitting there watching it. And, and of course, you know, his dog gets killed. And and I, I have a problem, too. I don't like seeing animals get hurt whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so that that is always a little rough on me. Um, I can take you beating up humans or whatever. But if you're hurting an animal, I'm I'm not cool with it. Um, but it, so we're watching the movie and she's like, she's like, dude, why are you showing this to me? And mm. I'm like, well, just wait. Yeah. <laughs> because as mad as you are now, when you see what he's about to do, you're going to be so happy. <laughs> I remember um, putting that movie up for a long time because my wife's the same. She's big on, uh, like we're both big animal lovers. We've got a couple of dogs. Um, yeah. And uh, always big, 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 big animal lovers. And I remember being nervous. I was like, I'm going to watch it first and I'll let you know whether you should watch it. And I remember I watched it. I remember thinking, you know what? This is going to this is a weird phrase, but it was done quite tastefully. Like if you're going to kill an animal on screen, like they did it in sure. a way where they don't show too much. It's not too confronting. It's enough to kind of, you know, get the heartbeat racing and to kind of like trigger that emotion, but not enough to kind of upset you and like, gross you out and give you nightmares and stuff like that. They just did, did enough to get the point across. And then, you know, Keanu goes full wick after that, um, becomes a very entertaining yeah, flick. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and that's so a tough, it, that's it a was, tough one. Like, it's really like, what's your movie? Well, a guy gets his, his puppy, not even dog, his puppy is murdered. And then he goes on revenge. It's like, Oof, do you want to write something nicer? <laughs> well, and it was funny because, because, uh, you know, Kevin's sister, like she, she loved, Kill Bill so much. He was a big mm. fan. And I was like, you can watch all of this stuff happen to Beatrix, mm. but, and you're cool with it <laughs> or not necessarily cool with it, but you can handle that, but you can't handle the puppy. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I kind of agree, but yeah, but Tarantino has a way of just taking these like terror, like these terrible things and then like kind of justifying them, I guess you could yeah. say. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's jump to what I would say is maybe his best film and definitely a, a, top, a contender for one of my top favorites as well. Inglorious Bastards. That's the, that's his next Inglourious one. So good. Um, a film that I did not like the first time I saw it because I came out of it and I was like, I thought it was a World War II film. All they did was talk about movies. I'd missed the point yet again. Um, yeah. <laughs> that flick, well, like, oh, like the idea again, that it's, so. So that one's, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but you're it, fine. Like, Inglor- Inglorious Bastards is one of those that is very dialogue heavy. Yeah. And if you're kind of not uh, prepared for that, like if you don't know what you're walking into, it, it can kind of seem a little boring because of all the dialogue. Well, the but first 15, then, 20 minutes is primarily in French and German. There's almost no English at all. Right. Mm. But but then once you kind of like – that for me, the first time I saw Inglorious Bastards, I was like – I was just like, man, they're just going to sit around and talk all day. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that milk scene is intense. <laughs> like it's really, – yeah. even, even though I didn't get the film the first time, I could agree like that first 15, 20 minutes was so intense. Just like talking about the milk, the you know, the Jewish people hiding under the floorboards. Oh, my God. Right. But, but and just, so <laughs> once I got over the kind of like I guess the shock of that, like I went back and watched it again, like knowing what I was going into 
And knowing what I was going into and rewatching it, I was just like, man, this movie's fucking brilliant. Like yeah. it's, it's amazing. Uh, so it, it's kind of one of those that you had to kind of warm up to a little bit. It's there's so much in it. Like, cause you've got three, you've got three stories. You've got the story of the bastards, but they're really such a small part of the overall story. Like I thought it was just going to be like Eli Roth hitting people with baseball bats for two hours, which I would have right. been totally <laughs> fine with. And that scene, by the way, like, I know people have a, a thing about Eli Roth. They think he's a bit, you know, obnoxious and stuff like that. But that character is so good, <laughs> and that performance is so uh, fun. What did What did they call him again? The the, the bear Jew. The bear Jew, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but um, there's such a small part of it because then you've got the whole um, French cinema side of things with Shoshana, um, played by Melanie Laurent, who is stunning. Yeah. Maybe the most beautiful actress in the world. To like, whenever she's on screen, I'm just like. Uh, you can't you can't give me a pause if I'm like no no Shoshana's on let's just get to the Shoshana oh, yeah, scene yeah, yeah. then I'll talk to you and then you've got the Christoph Waltz scene like that was his I believe his you know kind of American movie debut he'd never done an English speaking role before that film and what right. a performance to start with well and and to to start with that and then you know transition into Django like he God. I mean, it, it, not to jump ahead to Django, but I mean, just his his performance, it, you know. And did what he nominated for Inglorious Bastards? Didn't he, he get nominated for? He, nom- he was not. He was nominated for Hans Lander, but he won for um, King Schultz. And I remember being like, that seems backwards <laughs> because whilst his role yeah. as Schultz is great, like Hans Lander is, a, like that is a true villain. And I remember after seeing that when I went to Django. I was suspicious of him the entire time. I was like, I've seen, he was, <laughs> he was so good as a villain in another movie. I wasn't convinced he was a good guy until the very end. I was like, ah, oh, I guess he was good. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. But, um, but yeah, Inglourious, like, uh, and, and I need to go back and rewatch it again. It's been a few years since I've seen it. Um, but like I said, like after I kind of figured out what was going on or, you know, kind of, what the feel was and and everything having watched it the second time like i i just appreciate it so much more for what it is it's it's just so it's just so good and that's that's one of the things that like i love about tarantino i mean like some of i i I mean just his dialogue it's just so good i mean just just from you know reservoir dogs with him talking about <laughs> leaving a tip yeah like it's just it's just this such a like remedial or like nonchalant thing but it's just it's like, so natural it's like that would be a conversation that you would have with people you know like it's yeah right it's like it's like oh he doesn't tip no i don't tip why don't you tip like, and and that's <laughs> that's 20 minutes of the movie and then just talking about not tipping and it's and it's hilarious it's really good and it's same thing you know when you jump to you know pulp fiction uh just uh you know travolta and uma thurman's you know dialogue sitting at the dinner table you know and and their milkshakes and i was gonna say five dollar milkshake i gotta taste what a five dollar milkshake (laughs) i gotta taste what a five dollar milkshake tastes like uh, but yeah, I mean, and then, uh, I mean, even, 
even in Pulp Fiction where Travolta's talking to the drug dealer, like he's going to buy his heroin. And he's like, man, I just got back and, uh, you know, motherfucker, keep my car. I've had it out of, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've had it out of storage for like a week and motherfucker, keep my car. And then you, just, you know, what they call a quarter pounder in France. They don't have the metric exactly. system Royale with cheese. <laughs> we don't have the metric system in Australia and it's a quarter, it's a quarter pounder, but I did go somewhere where they spoke French and they did call it a Royale with cheese. I was very, I was very impressed. <laughs> I was like, he did his yeah. research. Or either that or McDonald's were like, what a great idea. Let's change it. <laughs> so. I mean, that's hilarious. And then, I I mean, just them walking them walking up to the apartment mm. to go at the guys and talking about the, the foot massage. I was waiting for that as well, the foot massage. <laughs> the awaken, I think that's the awakening of Quentin Tarantino's obsession with feet. That conversation, he was like, I'm going to get foot massages into these movies. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you know, giving a foot massage and then sticking your tongue in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the holy of holies. It ain't the same fucking thing, same fucking ballpark. He's like, you give your mother foot massage. He's like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Like even like, I I think like the most, and it all comes down to the dialogue. Is the most intense scene he's written is that scene in the basement in Glorious Bastards where they're playing the game with the, the, the card game. Yeah. Like, and again, like that's such a basic dialogue. You know, I have, a, I had a son born, his name is Max. And, you know, they're all like playing the game, like King Kong and stuff like that. That should be so friendly and like kind of boring and not interesting at all. But because the tension is built so much, it's the most intense scene in any of his movies. It's so full on. Uh, and is, I love, it's... one thing I quote, all the time to a buddy of mine um, who's been on the show before. It's a Michael Fassbender line of dialogue where he's just like, well, if I'm going out, I hope you don't mind I finish in the Kings. Like, just... It's yeah. got that very, like, curt British accent. It's so good. Yes. It's perfect. And that that's one of the things... Um, that's one of the things with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that kind of threw me off... Um, which again, I mean, I I do like Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time, it's it's not my favorite by mm. far. But the lack of dialogue in Once Upon a Time, I think, is yeah. what threw me off. I think that and it's, for me, it's almost like a it's almost like a silent film. Yeah, I agree. There's a very little dialogue, which is unusual for Tarantino, and also it seemed to have a distinct lack of purpose. Um, and that's fine. Like, it's okay. Like to do like films don't have to have purpose, but Tarantino uniquely has a very clear purpose with all of his films. Like, you know, yeah. um, e- even Pulp Fiction, which people could say, well, it's just kind of a bunch of conversations, but it's meant to be a reflection of like 70s cinema and those pulp novels and things like that. You know, Kill Bill yeah. is an homage to samurai films, but then also to, um, to Kung Fu and to Westerns. Like every film has a very distinct purpose. Hateful Eight is clearly, Reservoir Dogs set in the 1800s. Like they've all got their own purpose. But once upon a hold, I'm like, I thought it was going to be about the Manson family. That's the kind of way that it was sold to me. So I kept waiting for that stuff to happen. And yeah, it kind of happens, but never really does go anywhere. So again, it's not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. It's wonderfully shot, and the performances are great, and the the soundtrack is funky. But it just films seems like he didn't really have a. I just feel like the movie isn't saying anything. I guess, and that's kind of unusual for a Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah, exactly, and and it was it was kind of sold to me, or 
I guess the marketing for it and everything, like I was expecting the same thing was like, I, I was expecting, you know, this Tarantino film about, you know, the Manson family, um, which is a very small part of it. It's not really, you know, a, a big kind of part of the movie. Um, so and maybe that's our fault as an audience. Cause we should have known that a, it's never going to be the thing you think it is. And B, it's probably going to be about movies. <laughs> like that's right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, so it's it's probably our fault um, going in it, expecting something other than what it is. Uh, but it's it's still it's it's still probably my least. Well, I'll say Jackie Brown's probably my least favorite. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I just I. Again, I, I still enjoy the movie, but it just, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to know what to think about it. Look, um, in a, li- a list of films by a great filmmaker, one of them has to go on the bottom. You know, like that's, that, that, right, exactly. that's the way you got to look at it. Just because you don't like it as much as other, like it's still better than most films that other directors have made. So it's still a good film. It's just, you know, for him, it doesn't quite, you know, hit as high as yeah. some of the other ones. Um, and, it, you know, I feel like Tarantino because he's such an overachiever in my book. I know other people don't like him and that's fine. To me, he's such a cinematic overachiever. I feel like he's really setting himself up for failure because it's like, well, after Kill Bill, what could you do? Oh, he did Death Proof, which is also great. Well, what could, what could you do after that? Oh, he did Inglorious Bastards, which is maybe one of the best World War II films, fictionalized though it may be, of all time. Well, what can you do after that? Oh, he did Django. Well, it's not going to get better than Django. Oh, he did Hateful Eight. Like, he keeps elevating. Yeah. and But he elevates but then goes into a different direction so he's never really competing with himself he's always doing something a little different and then once upon yeah. a time in hollywood i think for the first time he didn't elevate like it's just like oh that's really cool but like well you followed all these fantastic movies for the last 20 years i guess at some point it was going to go like it's like the marvel thing you know people are like you know when's marvel going to trip up and you know phase four people were like well marvel tripped up a lot um and i don't personally feel that way but it's like well how do you follow endgame you can't follow Endgame because you put every single character in there and you tied it up yeah. masterfully. Like, you're going to stumble. You're going to have to recalibrate. I think it's the same thing with Tarantino. Like, Once Upon a Time, Mexi- uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's not a bad movie. It's just, look, look at the body of work. <laughs> like, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially, like, after, I, I mean, after Django, which, which again, I, I will still say is, is my favorite. And I, I think it's funny how much shit he got over Django. Mm. Uh, I, I remember in, in interviews, uh, so especially after Kill Bill, um, you know, he, he had taken a lot of interviews and, and these reporters and stuff were like, well, what's up with all this hyper violence or, or what do you think that says about the film industry? Or, or do you think that you're putting out a good, uh, you know, look to moviegoers or kids or whatever. Mm. And Tarantino was just like, dude, I don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm making my movie and I'm making what I want to make. And one of the things that I love about him is that he's so unapologetic Yeah, that he's, he's just like, dude, listen, I made what I wanted to make. And if you don't like it or you think it's too violent or you think that, it's too violent for kids or whatever. He's like, first of all, you should be taking your kids to it. Mm. And second of all, if you don't like it, don't watch it. Yeah, and... absolutely. I remember he got, there was a point, there's a really good interview with a British journalist where 
it was, I think, on the tail end of all this sort of stuff where he asked about the violence. And Quentin Tarantino was like, no, I'm not talking about it again. I'm shutting you down. Like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I've said yes. everything I have to say about it. And the thing that is, like, it's it's funny, like, because I never thought about it that way, that, like, I never I never think about Tarantino as a violent filmmaker or a filmmaker makes violent films. Like, yes, they are. But because I'm a horror movie fan and I've been a fan of, you know, films from different genres and different eras, I'm very aware that violence has always been in cinema long before Quentin Tarantino made movies and there will be long afterwards. But I guess like in terms of the mainstream, I guess he's one of the few directors who's had such success on making violent films. Like I just don't think like more people have probably, you know, more people have seen a Tarantino film than, you know, some of the, those nasty films we're talking about before. It just hits on a wider audience. So maybe that's why he's come under so much fire. But um, I think well, at least... We're going, yeah. I'm saying kind of like at the time you you had already had like Hostel and like Saw and then you want to talk about Kill Bill? Like Yeah. What are you talking about? Um and the other thing which when I when I talk about Tarantino, I always say hyperviolent. Um and I like that term because the violence is so over the top that it makes me laugh. I think yeah. it's funny. Like, yeah, you know, I have, especially. I have that ahead. as well. I have that as well. Like I, um, it used to annoy my wife um, when we were dating. Like we go see something violent and I would laugh and she's like, people are going to think you're a maniac. And I was like, I am a maniac. It's fine. Like, but it's just so stylized and hyper. Like, yeah. Like, or you go like, Oh, like you celebrate it. Cause it's like, it's not like watching, you know, like an autopsy video or like, a, you know, a surgery where someone's being pulled apart and they're like, like, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're laughing at. We're like, someone like got kicked and a bone snapped through their leg and we weren't expecting it. Like, it's so ridiculous and over the top. Like Kill Bill, he literally had fountains of blood, you know, in the limbs. Yeah. Like, that, like, that's not how it works. That's why it's amusing because it's not realistic. Like, it's so silly. Yeah, especially volume one, yeah. uh, you know somebody getting their their arm chopped off and like literally spray spraying blood mm. across the, <laughs> across the room like a freaking water hose like yeah that's not how this works that's not how any of the shit works um, and i think <laughs> like you know if you're going to come after hilarious. if you're going to come after violence in cinema and some and people will always come after it because they always come after what they don't you know what they deem to be wrong and everyone has their own opinions and that's fine like if you don't like violent movies that's fine you don't have to but I think if there's always going to be violence in cinema, at least Quentin Tarantino goes out of his way to make movies that are stylistically interesting and there's like a love in the craft and the stories are well considered. Like you could just watch any B horror film and get the same, you know, kind of violence and with none of that. But like Tarantino like actually goes out of his way to like tell a compelling story and make, you know, great characters and stuff. So I feel like if anyone's going to do violence in cinema, like go with him because at least he's making an effort. Like there's a lot more to it than just violence. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, you know, to the point, it, like he kind of knows, he kind of knows where to draw back and when to push hard. So mm. like with, with Django, for example, you know, the, the scene, which is still a tough scene to watch, but like we mentioned earlier, like, you know, the, the guy getting torn apart by the dogs, yeah. but he doesn't, he doesn't show that. Like, he doesn't show that like shot for shot. He doesn't show the dogs, like literally like pulling the guy apart. I mean, of course you can tell what's happening, but he kind of pulls back from that. 
but then when it's time for Django to come in and get his revenge mm. and shoot every motherfucker in the house, <laughs> yeah, he's, just blowing, he's blowing limbs off and there is blood shooting across the room. And you know what I'm saying? So like, mm. I mean, he, he's very per- purposeful and he knows what he's doing. And, no, and absolutely. Was, and look, I, I, that dog scene is probably worse because you don't see it because you can just hear it and you've got your imagination. That's why it's so intense. Oh, exactly. But a lesser filmmaker would have shown it and it probably would have looked either too horrifying or really poorly done. So it's definitely the right move. And also it's meant to, you're meant to feel that way. Like if, for people who miss the point of that movie, slavery is bad. Um, so like, yeah, and the people who did it were horrible people. Like they, if you want to know what kind of monster Calvin Candy is, uh, but I guess we're going to talk about Django now, which is good. Um, like yes. that's the kind of man Calvin Candy is. Like, yeah, he's he's a charming guy when he's talking. You know, um, you know, he seems like he's really nice to all the people. But once you know he starts getting down to business, like he's a despicable human being, and that's why we we heard dogs tear apart one of his slaves because you're not meant to empathize with Calvin. He's not meant to be your hero, and if he is, you might have missed the point of the movie. <laughs> right. Well, and it, I think that uh, one of the things that I got I got upset about after Django came out, you know, everybody was going after him about, you know, being racist and, yeah. you know, cause, because of the because of the KKK scene, which, dear God, <laughs> that's such a good scene. It's such a like still, still one of the funniest, like. Taking something that's horrible, yes, it's horrible. The KKK is bad. Like, they did terrible things. But, like, that scene about the bags and cutting the holes in the bags. So, like, and, my wife spent uh, so much time on these. Like, yeah. Hey, we all know his wife worked really hard on these. All we're saying is next time, let's alter the design. Like, just. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we just go no bags this time and the next time for regalia. <laughs> Like it's so good, and uh, and the conversation with uh, uh, Don Johnson and and his 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 house lady talking about now go around and show Django all the pretty things, and she's like, "You want me to treat him like white folks?" He's like, "No, nah, I didn't say that." <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know Jerry, the kind of slow fellow that works down at the hardware store. Yes, sir. Treat him like Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) Just, it's so funny. Like, and he's, he's picking fun of it because it is so stupid. Yeah. You know, the the people's mindset and everything at the time. And then of course, you know, they drop the the N word like 50 million times in the movie and everything. But I'm like, did you guys not watch the movie? Did you not understand that the whole point of all this terrible shit happening is the fact that Django comes back and, fucks them all up like that was whole that was such a weird thing like and like spike lee was very vocal as well and look i'm not gonna go up against spike lee like spike lee knows what he's doing he's been fighting for the the cause and you know he's been supporting african-american art and and the people forever in his work and he's like black klansman is one of my favorite movies it's so so well done i still have not watched that i need to oh it's really good um and like i like interestingly does a lot of things that Django does where it makes a lot of fun of it like it's so it's so funny that he came out after came out against Django Unchained so much. Um, I think mainly because the director was white. 
because Black Klansman does a lot of the same stuff. Like you'll like you'll definitely see some similarities. Like yes, they're horrible people, but there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek humor that you know makes the film entertaining. Um, but um, yeah, he came out. I think Samuel L. Jackson kind of came out and defended Tarantino. Was like, look, it's a movie about slavery. This is that's kind of the point. The thing that surprised me was like, why wasn't anyone picking this up in Pulp Fiction? Like, there is a 15-minute scene where Quentin oh, Tarantino yeah. gives out racist dialogue, and there's no like, is he meant to be a racist, or is he just using that word for the sake of it? Because I watched Pulp Fiction this year, I was like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> As a guy in his mid 30s, this makes me uncomfortable in a way it didn't when I was yeah. in my 20s. Like, that's like, at least Django, there's context. It kind of makes sense. Like, whether you agree with it or not is one thing, but at least in the frame of the story, oh, yeah. like. Oh yeah, well they're racist. They're going to say that word. Like, and also if you're telling a story about racism and you don't portray your racist horrible people, I think you've underserved the story. Like, they need to be portrayed as horrible as possible if you're trying to get across the point that racism is bad. So, whereas yeah, Pulp Fiction, I can't defend that. I'm like, I have no idea why he decided to do that. Like, it makes yeah, no sense. Pulp Fiction, yeah. I mean, like, you know, do you do you see a sign out front that says "dead in storage"? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, because it's not fucking there. <laughs> yeah, that's a tougher one to defend because, like, they were, they weren't like, "Oh, we're going to our mate Jimmy." By the way, he's a huge racist. Like, they don't say that in the film. They're just right. like, um, yeah. But again, it's it's just part of him kind of being unapologetic, and is is that this dirty, trashy? I mean, like, are are you really pulling up to a guy's house with a dead dude in the back of your car? That's a good guy. Like, no, yeah. you're not. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. That's a, that's a good point. Just you like the bride. He's, he's not actually a nice person. Um, I think Django, uh, it's, it's such a great flick. It's so enjoyable. Um, it, is, the, and it's, it is. As much as you, as much as you hate Calvin Candy, like DiCaprio, playing that part like it's just amazing like he's really good in it and Um, how he did not how he did not get the oscar that year um because he got the oscar the following year for the revenant which i like the revenant but to me personally his performance was way better in Django. And yeah, he's done, yeah. I would say, a dozen performances better than The Revenant. Like, the Revenant is great, but like he also didn't get nominated for Wolf of Wall Street. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I just, oh, re-watch, yeah. Yeah. I just rewatched Wolf of Wall Street. That flick is incredible. Like, um, Well, and to be honest, I, in The Revenant, I, I thought Tom Hardy was better than he was. I thought yeah. Tom Hardy was fucking sick in The Revenant. So but good in that movie, yeah. I, I think it just ended up like he had been nominated so many times that they were like, all right, we, uh, we've we got to give it. They're to like, we forgot. Year. We made a mistake. Let's just quickly, quickly, let's get this done so people stop talking about it. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. <laughs> One thing I love about Django, and it's evident in all this film, but I think it's the first time I really picked up on it, is how much interconnectivity there is between his films. Um, because Tarantino's even said himself, he's like, there are two universes in my films. There are the, film, there are the films which all my characters inhabit, and there are the films within the films that they all watch. So Kill Bill is a film yes. set, is a film that his characters would watch. Like um, Death Proof is a film that his characters would watch. But then like, um, well, actually, no, I don't know if Kill Bill was one because King Schultz is meant to be like the great, great, great grandfather of Paul Schultz, which is the grave that the bride is buried in. Um, yes, exactly. Yep. And I also like the Broomhilda is the great 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 grandmother of Shaft, like from the movie Shaft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a great yep. little joke as well. Um, I love all that interconnectivity. That, I think that's really good. Um, 
and well, I think and, and go on, sorry. And don't they doesn't he use the the radio station that they listen to in Reservoir Dogs? I think he uses that same radio station in um, several movies. Yes, like and if the radio is on, it's that same radio is another one. Yeah, use the same yeah. radio station. Um, there's also. I think it's in Pulp Fiction. Is it Fox Force 5, the pilot that she did that never got picked up? Um, Correct. Yeah. People were like, well, maybe like Kill Bill is what Fox Force 5 ended up becoming. Five was Yeah, right. it was the right. Deadly Viper Assassination Squad became what Fox Force 5 was supposed to be. And guess what? She looks like Mia Wallace. <laughs> it's <Yep>. just <laughs> such great. I just love that attention to detail. Previously, I'd only seen it in Kevin Smith films, but like just those little in-jokes just to keep it interesting for the filmmaker, I, I think is great. Yeah, absolutely. And like, yeah, uh, I do. It, it doesn't have quite the consistency. Like you said, that the, the Kevin Smith or, or like kind of view askew universe has, uh, but, uh, it, it does have that kind of, that kind of vibe to it where it's just kind of like, if, if you know the movies, well, if you pay attention, like you kind of get the, you kind of get the little underlying jokes that he writes in. They just know what, us nerds like like i've referenced it three times now like kevin smith films tarantino films and then like uncle machete is also machete like clearly i just want to see all the i just want to see all the dots connected like (laughs) i'm the absolute definition of like the stereotypical film geek like just yes show me as much continuity as possible thank you um yeah well and and the thing you know with with django too especially kind of going back to them kind of like getting at him like saying it's like racist or like whatever like Django's Django's character is like such a powerful character mm. like especially you know towards the beginning when they're going to Candyland when he pulls um Walton Coggins off of that horse yeah <laughs> he's like you gonna walk with me you want me to hold your hand like <laughs> He's just a badass man, and they they allow him to be a badass, uh, and and just kind of picking, kind of seeing his development of you know when when Schultz you know picks him up and then you know is educating him and and showing him the business and everything. One of my favorite lines is like uh, <laughs> he's like he's like do you do you see that target and he's like. He's like, yeah. He's like, is that him? And he's like, yeah. He's like, are you positive? He's like, I don't know what positive means. <laughs> 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 are you sure that it's him? And he's like, oh, you, well, then, yeah, I'm positive. Like, it's, it's just so, like, it's so well done, man. And, you know, people want to hate on that. I just, I just don't fucking get it, man. I, uh, I also love one of my favorite moments in the film because it's, it's, like all of his films, there's a real sense of fun and humor in there. Like, again, this is a story about racism. The other problem this film has, it came out around the same time as 12 Years a Slave, and obviously 12 Years a Slave was a very serious depiction of slavery. And um, yeah. I, I don't know if you've seen that one, but that is a tough movie to watch. Like, it's very, very... Yes, it uh, is. Yeah, so having Django come out around the same time probably didn't do it any favors because it's like, oh, we've got two slavery films. One is taking the subject matter very seriously in a very kind of poignant way. And this one's an action movie, so I'm sure like that didn't help Tarantino either. But um, right. there is a lot of humor in it, and I think one of the funniest moments in that film is just a visual gag, is where they're like, "All right, Django, pick out anything you want," and he comes out in that blue suit with like the oh. rifle, and like the, he's got the stockings on. 
Well, and the the uh, the uh, I think her name was Bettina at the at the first plantation they go to. Uh, she's like, "Oh, you get to pick out your own clothes," and he's like, "Yeah." And she's like, you "So you that? choose to dress like that?" Just <laughs> <laughs> so good, man. It's so good, and it's and it's very it's it's also kind of uh kind of a little tip of the hat to like you know kind of like the the 70s like pimp culture you know mm. pimps with the big old hats and the crazy colored suits and everything like that like mm. just it's just it's so funny um and i i was surprised after django like i i didn't think that i would like the next tarantino movie so much but man hateful eight yeah uh, it's it's a beast of a movie, man. I went um, into Hateful Eight. Um, I, I just much. I remember like by the time I'd seen Django, like I was I was already a Tarantino fan. Like I'd been a fan for obviously Kill Bill. You know, coming out to almost ten years earlier, I, I was a fan. But like, I was starting to get my head around the internet. Finally, I was do. I was really into film. I was looking up everything I could. When that first teaser came out, it wasn't even a trailer. It was an animated. I don't even remember the first teaser. It was just like a bunch of animated slides. And there was a wagon, and like every name got printed in blood. I was like, "Oh, I'm ready for this yeah. flick." I don't know what it is, but I'm ready. And again, hateful like not what I was expecting. I was expecting like a gangbusters, like big, bold spaghetti western, like Django, but like cranked up to eleven. And instead, it's a very quiet movie set in one look. It, again, like I, I said it before, and I've said it, I said it to, to a lot of people, it's basically Reservoir Dogs in the 1800s. Like it's one room in this big cabin. Um, but it's so effective and it's so well done. And like, it's a three hour flick, especially if you watch the, the 70 mil super print, but I don't know right. what I would cut out of it. Like everything is important. Um, I went, did you, did you go to the road show? I know that he did like a road show version of the film where you could see it with the intermission and stuff. Did you get to see it that way or did you see it in the regular theater? No, no, I actually, I didn't, uh, I didn't get out to see it in the theater. I, I didn't get to watch it until I could get it at home. Mm. Um, and, um, well, I guess and, your kids would have been quite, of, quite young at that point, weren't they? Because your kids are eight now, so they would have been, what, like two when that came out? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, so the kids were really young, and uh, I, didn't get, I didn't get out to the theater, you know, a lot of that time. Uh, yeah, so, I, c- I can relate. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely knew, like, the runtime on it and everything, and I was like, I was like there's no way I'm going to get the time to go out and watch this in, in the theater. And, and half of the time, once, even if I could get a sitter or whatever, I, I was just so tired by the time I got the girls down <laughs> or whatever. I was like, there's no way I'm sitting through a three hour movie. So no, for sure. and that one till, is slow and, and quiet. So you probably would have fallen asleep. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, but, uh, but no, so once, once I did get to see it, uh, it was, it was interesting, and I'm glad that you said that it was uh, kind of you know Reservoir Dogs just set in a different time frame because that's that's the absolute vibes, you know that the first time that I watched it, I was like, oh yeah, that was just kind of Reservoir Dogs and maybe just a little more brutal, different time setting, um, but so good, mm. and again, very dialogue heavy, and that's what Tarantino is good at. He's really good at the dialogue. Um, and I love Kurt Russell. Yeah. I he was freaking awesome. And Oh, fun, fun fact too. Um, so 
were you aware of the part where um are you going to play the guitar the yes yeah, i knew as you said kurt russell i'm like we're gonna talk about the guitar yep okay yes <laughs> smashes the guitar and it's like this huge piece of history that and and uh old girl's reaction uh jennifer jason lee her reaction as he smashes it is like her actual reaction because yeah she's they like, hadn't swapped out the prop guitar <laughs> yeah like uh so i i mean i know because uh, my, my grandfather has a 19, he's got a 1962, uh, Martin guitar, mm. which the last time I priced it was going for insane amounts of money, like close to like 20,000. Wow. Um, just, just for an original 62 Martin. So mm. I can't even imagine what that guitar that he fucking smashed cost. Oh yeah, uh, it was <laughs> probably half of their film budget right there. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this uh, film yeah. would have really appealed to you because yes, it's Kurt Russell, and I know you like Kurt Russell. Um, yeah. It's set in the snow and it's isolated, very much like the thing. And I know you like the thing. So we got we got, Kurt, yes. we got there's a lot of thing stuff going on. We got isolation in the snow. We got Kurt Russell, and apparently. Yeah. Some of the score was unused tracks from the original thing. Um, that I did not know. Okay. So the score, like Ennio Morricone came in and did a new score, but apparently he used some unused samples from the original thing because it just didn't fit the vibe John Carpenter was going for or, or whatever. So I believe, I could be wrong, but that's what I'd heard. Wow, I'll have to check that out. No, that's cool. Mm. Because, yeah, you're right, you know, I've talked about and I talk about at length <laughs> how much I like the thing. So yeah, no, I wasn't aware of that. That's cool. But uh, the cool, the cool thing about uh, the hateful eight that, that I liked was, you know, the first, you know, two acts of the movie are, you know, that very dialogue heavy, uh, you know, just kind of mystery kind of thing mm. going on. And then, man, when that third act hits, though, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It, pretty, it's, it is classic Tarantino <laughs> relentless action. Like, Although yes. I do feel like because of Hateful Eight, that's why we got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because it's like, oh, I don't have to do any action for like two hours in a movie. I can just wait till the end and then just have someone throw a can of dog food. We'll, we'll get to that. But I was like, no, no, no. We, <laughs> What I like about Hateful Eight as well is because previously his dialogue is fantastic. We talk about his dialogue a lot, but he relies on a lot on popular culture. And even in Django, whilst he wasn't really talking about popular culture, he was using popular music. Hateful Eight yeah. proves he doesn't matter. Put him in, put him three hundred years ago. There's no such thing as popular culture. It's all score. It still works. Like the dialogue still works. Like, and I don't know what thing he had Absolutely. to build up to, but like Hateful Eight proves that hey. You can say he has all these crutches and he borrows from everything, but Hateful Eight kind of snubs its nose at that. Blows it out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And 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 I will have to make a note. I I love 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 um, Walton Coggins, man. He's so good. In in Django and and in this, uh, he's great, and he's he's so good as a comedic actor. But he's so good as like a serious actor too. Like, I mean, in in Django and in this, like, it's it's definitely not like a comedic role, like whatsoever. He's just playing the fucking asshole. Um, 
but man, like I don't I don't know if you watched any of the HBO shows like uh, the Righteous Gemstones. Yeah, like Righteous Gemstones and uh, like Vice Principals. I've seen I think a couple episodes of Vice Principals, and him opposite Danny McBride is pure magic. He is like (laughs) hilarious, man. He is so fucking funny. Um, And if you haven't watched Righteous Gemstones, man, watch. Right it's on my so. it's on my list to check out. I really do want to check it out. I just haven't got to it yet. But no, um, yeah, Walton Goggins. Yeah, he probably I probably became really aware of him because of Hateful Eight. I'd seen him in other things, but that was probably what put him on the map for me. Um, yeah. And now, whenever I see his name pop up, I'm like, well, I know that like this flick's gonna at least have one good performance in it because he is consistently strong. Doesn't matter what the yeah. genre is. You're absolutely right. He can go comedic, he can go serious. Um, I don't know if he's done any horror, but I'd love to see him do something a bit darker and creepier. Cause I feel like he, I feel yeah. like he could totally pull creepy really well. I think he could do a really good creep. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't, I don't, to my knowledge, or nothing stands out for me. I might be wrong. We could look it up. But was um, he in? Um, he, was he in uh, Westworld as well? Is that where I know him from? Uh, Westworld. Do you do Westworld? Maybe he didn't. Maybe I just thought he was in Westworld. He does a lot of westerns, so. No, I don't think he. Uh, no, maybe he, he was. He, no, no, he did do Tomb Raider. That's where I know him from as well. He was the villain in Tomb Raider. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I was gonna say if he was in Westworld, it would have been season one, but, um, but no, but yeah, his his performances are consistently great. Um, I I almost like him uh, more in a comedic role. <laughs> now than anything because he cracks me up i think he's absolutely hilarious he has um, that great episode of community i don't know if you if you ever watched community but he's got one episode of community where he um d- does um chevy chase's will um because chevy chase was a character on, on the first four seasons his character yeah, dies that's yeah. i don't know if you have, have you seen that episode where he has to do the will reading no i haven't seen that one. Oh, it's so good like and they did like a live reading of it um, during lockdown, but um, Pedro Pascal played the Walton Goggins character. But basically, just it results in him bequeathing like canisters of semen to all of his classmates. It's very funny. Uh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll have to go back and check that out. <laughs> but Walton Goggins, yeah, it doesn't matter what role he's in, the guy's genius. Yeah, he is. He's great. Um, so, yeah, so hopefully, and then, yeah, I mean, we, we make our way to. Uh, I mean, there wasn't a lot about Hateful Eight that I did like. Um, I haven't watched it as many times. So Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the only reason that I haven't seen either one of them more than I have is just because of the runtime. It's just like you got to take a whole afternoon, like, (laughs) you know. The runtime, and and they're so new as well. Like Inglourious Bastards, I think, is about two and a half hours, but it came out 15 years ago now. So, like, I've had time. I had time before kids, before marriage, before living, you know, having my own place where I could just watch movies all night. But as you get older, (laughs) I take on those responsibilities, it's harder. But one thing in Hateful Eight I really liked is the very brief Tarantino cameo. He does have an appearance in the film, but it's just in a voiceover. And he just lets you know that the coffee's been poisoned, um, which sets up the entire oh, yeah, third yeah. act. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We haven't really t- – we'll, we'll jump back to a couple other things before we wrap up. But Once Upon a Time, sure. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood – oh, my God, I can't even say words. Um, very stylish flick. Like, visually, there's a lot going on. Musically, there's a lot going on. I, we have talked about it a little bit. It's just – in terms of the story, it just it's probably the one that yeah, affected me the least. Even though the performances are all good, you know? 
Yeah, I think I think everyone's great, and I, I actually really, I really love the uh, scene with uh, Brad Pitt and Bruce Lee. Yeah, like it, that that scene's really fun. That's one that that's one he copped a lot. He, it, did you just notice every time a film comes out, Tarantino cops it for something, uh, and people are like, "What? Some white guy could be Bruce Lee?" And it's like, no. Probably not, but this is a fake movie, so it's okay if it happens. Well, so I actually like I listen to if there's a guest that I that I like that's going to be on Joe Rogan's podcast, I'll listen to it. So I'm I'm not like an everyday listener, but if I just like browse past and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I've listened to know. the show before. I haven't listened to a lot lately, yeah, but yeah. yeah, like if Penn Gillette goes on or if Kevin Smith goes on or if someone I like goes on, like. Look, it's yeah, three, yeah, hours, it's three hours of it. someone I like talking. I'll take the hit so I can hear the person I like. <laughs> right. So um, uh, Tarantino did an episode, I think it was about a year ago. Um, oh, interesting. But, I must have missed that. Yeah, but Rogan, Rogan was talking to him because, of course, you know, Rogan's big MMA guy and martial arts and jujitsu and, you mm-hmm. know, all that stuff. Um, so he was talking to Tarantino about that scene because, you know, apparently a lot of people were like, oh, this is such bullshit, blah, blah, blah. And Tarantino like goes off on this probably good 30 to 40 minute, uh, you know, thing, you know, talking about Bruce Lee and the fact that, you know, Bruce Lee, yes, he was a talented fighter, but he was more of a choreographer. Mm. And it, like he he references some some different matches that Bruce Lee had and and all this stuff and it, so he kind of like he's he's not like shitting all over Bruce Lee but he's just saying like you know everybody's like oh he's this he's this legend he's untouchable you know that kind of thing and Tarantino's like ah oh, if you really look into it he's he's not the god that everybody thinks he is mm. um, now was he still fantastic yes uh, was he a great choreographer absolutely. Um, but he talks about that scene, um, in, in Hollywood and he says, you know, you know, basically, you know, Lee is kind of like the stylized fighter or choreographer. And then on the other hand, you got Brad Pitt that's actually been in combat and stabbed a guy in the neck. Mm. <laughs> like, he's a brute. Yeah. So. It's, a, it's a really good point actually. And Brad Pitt towers over him as well. Like he's like. I don't know what his workout right. routine was for this flick, but he's got that superhero diet going on. He's ripped in this movie. Yeah, yeah. So he he does just kind of kind of defend that scene, or he talks about that scene, and he's just like he's just like, well, listen, you know, there's there's one thing for you know a guy to be a great martial artist, but then there's another thing for this guy that's seen actual combat and stuck a knife in somebody's throat, and it's just a stone cold killer. Um, mm. So I I just thought that that kind of like that part of the conversation about that scene was really cool. That's a really um, fascinating yeah. point that, yeah, probably a lot of people didn't consider myself included. I didn't even think about that. I was just like, ah, oh, well, you know, Tarantino also killed Hitler in a movie. Like he's going to make things up, but kind of right. knowing that backstory, it's actually a really fascinating point. It's like, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Like I never saw Bruce Lee fight in real life. Like I've just seen the movies and it's all movie magic anyway. And if you do have a guy who has, you know, a questionable backstory, like that's the other thing. Like Brad Pitt's, Brad Pitt's character, not a nice guy. Maybe killed his wife. We don't know. Like if he's killed right. people before, <laughs> like he could definitely, you know, mess up Bruce Lee. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. A really interesting point. Um, 
Yeah, go back. Um, I mean that that episode of Joe Rogan with Tarantino is is great anyway. But um, yeah, go back and search for it. Like it's 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 a really good episode all around. But um, that that discussion in there is is pretty cool. Um, well, for the longest and, time, he wasn't doing podcasts. He would do interviews with promoting stuff. But I remember like there was a significant lack of Quentin Tarantino podcasts. Like even Kevin Smith, who's friends with him, couldn't get him on his show. Um, and right. then, but I think now Tarantino has his own podcast. Like so, that's pretty interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have much else to say about Hollywood. Like, I think I've said all I have to say about that. (laughs) I I think Hollywood, though, I I think it was was more of – and again, I I, I need to watch it again. I've I've Mm. seen it twice, but I I, I need to really watch it again. Um, Which, fun fact, uh, Kevin Smith's daughter is uh, in there. Yeah, she's in there, yeah. There's a whole episode where he talks to her about how, like, she auditioned for the role – and she didn't get it. And he was like, look, Quentin's a friend, but I'm not going to use my Hollywood power to get you a role. Like, if you're not right, you're not right. And she didn't get the role. And then, like, a month later, he called and he's like, look, you didn't get the role, but actually we kind of do this new thing now. Do you want to come in and do this instead? So she actually auditioned for a whole other role in the film. And then they kind of created that camp and added all these extra characters. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I listened to that episode. I think it was his uh, Smodcast episode. I think I listened to that one as well, where Smith is talking about that. Yeah, he makes um, a great joke about how she tries harder for other directors, but for his film, she just dials it in. I thought that was pretty funny. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, Hollywood, I think, um, and again, like I was saying, I, I, I need to go about, back and watch it again, but I, I think it was more of walking into it because there was talk for a long time that this was going to be kind of like the last Tarantino movie, but he's kind of said since that he thinks he's got one more that he's going to do. He's always um, said, I think he's always said 10. I think he's always like, it's going to be 10. Look, I think 10 is a good number to, to go out on. And he takes his time. Like most, like he doesn't do it. Like he like, I think it's like once every kind of three, four years for him, where some directors kind of move a bit quicker. So like he's been around right. since the nineties, but it's been, you know, it's been 30 years and he's only done nine movies. Like that's not a huge like strike rate in terms of releases. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it takes his time. Mm. Um, but, um, but yeah, so kind of like walking in uh, from my perspective and, and again, I, I was thinking that it was going to be the last one. So I'm like, okay, this is the magnum opus. This is going to be like his, like just blow it out of the water. Um, and I, I think he, he wanted more to kind of show off himself as a cinematographer or a filmmaker. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Rather than putting forward this like super compelling, like storyline. I think he just, just wanted to have fun shooting something, to be honest. Like, I, I think it was just like, I just want to shoot some shit and make it look cool. Yeah, it's definitely a love letter to old Hollywood, you know? Like, there's no doubt about that. Like, you look at the Western sets, you look at the the Hollywood strip and stuff like that. Like, it's definitely him being like, this is, let me immortalize what it looked like, you know, 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago at this point, jeez. Um, so there's definitely that. Um, and I agree with you. Definitely, you can't question the visuals of that film. Like, visually, it is stunning. Maybe maybe one of his best-looking flicks. I would, I would probably give Hateful Eight the, the edge there. Hateful Eight's a beautiful-looking movie. Yes, uh, it is. And then his last one, apparently, number 10, is The Critic. Um, that's what's coming next, which I guess is about – I'm, I'm guessing is about a film critic. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and I think they talked to – 
Paul Walter Hauser. Apparently, he's maybe going to be the lead. So I don't know. Um, he was. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I don't know. Oh, look, I'll go check it out. So apparently, he's not doing that Star Trek film anymore. He was attached to a Star Trek film for a while. Sounds like we're not going to get Kill Bill three, which is fine. Yeah, he like, was. You know, yeah, he was talking about that, and actually on that. Uh, on that Joe Rogan con, uh, podcast, he actually talks about it or, you know, he's like, well, you know, I'm kind of kicking this around. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but, you know, I just thought it would be kind of cool if, you know, the Beatrix came back with her daughter and, you know, um, you know, have some people coming after them or whatever. He was like, mm. I, I was kind of kicking around that idea. And I was well, like, he, oh, he, he did. He set it up at the first ten minutes of the first film, like Vanita Green's daughter needs her revenge. Like, there's your story. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be waiting. <laughs> yeah, we're all waiting. Um, all right. Before we wrap things up, we'll, I just want to jump back to a couple of Tarantino flicks that we didn't talk about because they're not specifically his films alone. Where do you stand on things like Natural Born Killers and True Romance, flicks that he wrote but didn't? Oh, and Killing Zoe actually is another one of his as well that he wrote but didn't direct. <laughs> So I'm probably going to be crucified uh, for this. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. No, no, that's what we do with the show. We give out unpopular opinions. <laughs> uh, but True Romance, I've never seen. Okay. Um, it's, it's really good. I, I really enjoy it. I, I think of the ones he hasn't directed, but he did write, I think it's my favorite. I really like True Romance. That's that's what I've heard. And in, in, at the time, it was pretty uh, pretty highly critically acclaimed right yeah yeah it's and uh, i haven't seen a lot of christian slater's work but what i have seen i would say it's his best i, I really like him in in true romance um yeah so i've never seen true romance um uh now natural born killers i do really enjoy mm. um i like natural born killers uh the 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 way that it's shot in all of the like psychedelic color choices mm. and just the overall like kind of craziness of the movie is it's really cool to me i, I know a lot of people kind of don't appreciate that uh i however think with the story that's being told and all of the craziness that is happening i think the way that it's shot it lends itself very well mm to to the overall story um and i am a big juliette lewis fan yeah she's uh, great so, uh i think she's fan well and woody harrelson too i love woody harrelson mm. um and i think he i think both of them uh did did great in that movie and probably some of their better performances uh other than uh woody harrelson in um true detective is pretty fucking brilliant i don't know if you've seen true detective but i've seen i think half of the first season uh, and it wasn't because i didn't like it i just i'm terrible at completing shows i'm really bad at finishing tv shows <laughs> um but i really did dig it um yeah woody Harrelson's is an interesting one because i always think of him as someone who like because he's kind of known as just like this like big stoner and like not too serious i don't always take him seriously as an actor and then he'll just surprise me i'm like oh my god like like war war yeah. for the planet of the apes chilling performance like he is treating that like yes. an absolute war movie like it's he's taking it so seriously so every now and then like i'll think about like the silly things and then i'll go back and you know see him do something really good so yeah um he's great and she's good at that intro where they're in the diner and she starts beating the guys up like he's such a tone setter for that film oh yeah it is and, and it's it's if you get a chance go back to go back to true detective it's it's yeah, really I'm good 
and it, I, I would say just watch season one and stop. Uh, sure, that's what I've heard. I've, I've heard, yeah. yeah, I've heard the longer it goes on, the less you need it. So. Three was better than two, but anyways. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so yeah, I, I really like Natural Born Killers a lot. Nice. Um, and it's a... You know, again, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a tough tough watch, not in a bad way. I was gonna say, but, I think it's his most disturbing film. Like he hasn't directed it, but the content in that, like the whole like abusive family shot as a sitcom. Like, and I know that that might not have been the script; that might have been changed by Oliver Stone. But there's some really dark stuff in that flick. Like, I would say far darker than Kill Bill. Um, you know, the one that copped so much yeah, you know, so- criticism. Yeah, so when I say like hard to watch, not not like visually or anything like that, I, I think it's shot beautifully, and I think everything lends itself to the movie very well. Um, but yeah, like like you said, it's just it's just very dark content, mm. so it's it's kind of a difficult watch. But but what a what a great movie! It's it's mm. a great movie. And uh, uh, speaking of Juliette Lewis, man. Uh, her and uh, you know we talked about dust till dawn briefly but there's uh, a very questionable moment in that film between quentin tarantino and juliet lewis (laughs) (laughs) richie would you do me a favor and eat my pussy for me that thing you said before (laughs) do you still want me to do uh because i don't know how i'd be more than happy to do that for you (laughs) juliet lewis must have been like in her 20s but she's a very young looking like i can't remember i think i'm trying to think of a movie i saw in where she, I thought she was under, like she was a teenager, but she was actually, oh, she was a teenager, but she was like 19 years old. But she looks about 15. Like she's a very, like she has a very young face yeah. um, in those yeah. early works. It's very, yeah, it's very tough. Um, oh, it was um, Cape Fear I watched because she's in Cape oh, Fear. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. She was, yeah, she was like 20, 21, but she's playing a 15 year old and like Robert De Niro is trying to hook up with her. And I buy yeah. that she's a 15 year old. Like she looks like she's 15. Um, yeah. She, yeah, she's what a great she, movie as well. Another great film. Always putting herself in precarious situations. Juliet Lewis in those movies is like, oof. Well, and more recently, if if you've not seen the show uh, Yellow Jackets, oh, I keep hearing um, how wonderful it is, but I haven't seen it. No, it is it is fantastic, and and she is well, pretty much everybody in the show is great, but especially uh, her and Christina Ricci. Oh, are I love Christina Ricci just as well. Amazing. Yeah, and she, she's Black Snake so Moans, good. Christina Ricci. Oh yeah. <laughs> I could have gone with Casper. I could have gone with I could have gone with anything, but I went with Black Snake Moan. Um with you know Quentin Tarantino. Are you are you a are you a family guy watcher at all? Uh, I haven't watched in probably about a decade. I used to be really big on it and then I didn't like stop enjoying it. I just kind of moved away from it. I haven't gone back, but I'll periodically see clips online I'm like, man, I need to go back and watch Family Guy. Um, so well, I can probably I can probably go up to like season ten pretty strong, and then after that, not so much. In the um, in the the Star Wars episodes, mm. um, I, I I think it's the I think it's I don't know if it's the second or the third one that they made, um, but you know the the whole gist is the power goes out, and so Peter starts telling the story of Star Wars. Um, but oh, yes, in that's like right. And this is the second one. The power goes out, and they're like, "Dad, tell us another movie. You're, you know, tell us another story." And he's like, "Well, once upon a time, there was Samuel L. Jackson, and Christina was all chained up for some reason that we don't know, and it's called Black Snake Moan." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's so funny. Um, Always cracks me up. Uh, that's yeah, that's so funny. Um, 
Did you? We talked about four rooms before we started recording. Um, oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah. We we kind of skipped four rooms. Um, I so. only watched it for the first time this year. It finally got a physical release in Australia. I think the last time it came out in Australia, it was on VHS. Wow. So we haven't had a physical wow. release in a good thirty years. What a fun flick! Like what a I mean, yes, you know. Um, well, and it's uh, it's uh, Tarantino and then Rodriguez. Because there's four different directors. Uh, yeah, just, I can't remember I who the other Guy two Ritchie are. Guy Ritchie does one. No, it's not Guy Ritchie. I've got it over here. Hang on, I'll I'll get it off my wall of movies. And uh, why don't I have it in the Tarantino section? Probably because there are a few directors attached. Um, Alison Anders and Alexandra Rockwell. So I don't know either of them. Um, okay. Or any, any of their work so, beyond that? Yeah. Tarantino's room is the the final one with Bruce Willis, correct? Yeah, with the um cutting off the finger yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is and awesome. Tarantino and... does a really he does actually a really stretched performance. You know, he really pushes himself and plays an independent filmmaker who's made a, a successful movie. <laughs> yeah, and then Rodriguez does uh, the room and, with Antonio Banderas, which and is there's really like a corpse too, in the bed. Um, and then yeah, I don't the yeah, I don't find know who... And then there's one where like there's a witch coven and they have to get like they have to sleep with a guy to get like restorative powers. Right, right. Um, and then probably my least favorite one is the one where the, like the there's the hostage game where like it's a couple and they do this kind of kinky sex game oh, yeah. where they take someone hostage and they because the, they think that she's having an affair but it's all just set up. It's not really not really real. That's where my least right, favorite right, one right. went on went on a bit much. But they're all pretty good. No, but it's a, it's a great movie and it's a cool little. Um, you know, mishmash of different directors and different stories. Um, and I absolutely love Tim Roth in this movie. Yes, he's so good. Like, like, Tim Roth is one of those actors that I often forget about. And every time he shows up, I'm so pleased to see him. Like, he's so good in Hateful Eight. Like, I always forget he's in there, but he's got that very, like, kind of charming old world British, like, oh, hello, yes, my name. Yeah. Like, very, like... No, yep. it's, not, it's not Cockney, but you know what I'm saying. Like it's very like yeah. stereotypical British. Um, even in like The Incredible Hulk, he's great. Like every time he shows up, that guy is great. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, I mean, going back to you know uh, the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. Yeah, you know, he plays General Spade. Uh, he's great in that. But this this <laughs> his role in, in four rooms is just absolutely hilarious. Um, it almost it almost reminds me of kind of like a kind of like a like a Mr. Bean kind of character. Mm, yeah, almost. yeah. Like he's just kind of and and a lot. He's just got a lot of like kind of quirky, weird movements, and then you know just sometimes he's left speechless and. Just will just kind of mumble and fix his hat and <laughs> and then move just, along. just stumbles into the worst possible scenario possible. Like it, like it should be a very easy thing. He's the night watchman. He just looks after the hotel at night. He should be like bringing room service up and just keeps getting caught into different like really terrible situations. Uh, like in the yeah. opening scene, like his boss or like his predecessors, is like just do one thing: don't sleep with any of the guests. In the first story, he already breaks that rule. Like it's yeah, just. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's a real treasure of a flick. Like, and uh, I think most people probably haven't even heard of it. Like, if you talk about Quentin Tarantino, no one's referencing Four Rooms. And I'd known about it for so long, but I only finally got my hands on it this year. But it's yeah, it's a real hidden gem. Like, it's definitely worth people's time. Yeah, it is. It's 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 a lot of fun. It's a it's a really funny movie. 
Um, obviously, uh, Rodriguez and Tarantino, like their kind of segments are, are definitely the most entertaining, uh, and the most fun, but, uh, but yeah, it's great. And, and especially, yeah, like, cause Tarantino, his, his segments kind of like the last one. And I mean, it's beautiful. It's, and, uh, uh, you know, again, Bruce Willis is great and just Tim Roth's performance. And and especially at the end, I kind of don't want to give it away <laughs> for people that haven't seen it. Uh, but the way that Tim Roth just kind of walks off at the end. Yeah. <laughs> he's, got a, he's got a terrible task to uh, uh, take care of, but he just mm. kind of walks off like it's nothing. Um, and it's hilarious. And yeah, again, love Tim Roth. And, and yeah, that little segment from Tarantino is definitely, even if you only watch that part, it's, it's worth that. Well, the one thing about that Tarantino segment I noticed that is so unique. First of all, it's definitely the longest of the, of the four segments. Um, but if, unless I'm mistaken, I'm pretty sure it's all done in one take. It's one long shot. The camera never cuts. Yes, I do believe it is. I think you're yeah. right about that. Which is... Like, even for, tough. Even for a short film, it's like a 20-minute segment. Like, like they would have had to rehearse that again and again and again and again. Or, you know, maybe they improv. Like, maybe, like, Quentin Tarantino did the Kevin Smith thing where he's like, ah, I'm the writer, so if I get it wrong, it's just a new draft. Like, I don't know. But it's um, it's pretty well held together. And it has a very physical gag at the end of the of the short. Like, as I mentioned, someone gets their finger cut off. Like, that's... Yeah. Like, they, they, and, that has to be timed perfectly, so... Yeah, talking. I mean, talking about those long shots like that. I mean, uh, just just in recent. I don't. I don't know if you've seen Life with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, uh, I saw it. I saw it when it came out. Um, yeah, when it first came out. I haven't seen it since. Um, but I remember really enjoying it. I remember I've been like, oh, it's kind of like Alien, and it's a bit like Venom a little yeah, bit. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it's just kind of a newer kind of Alien. Mm. Yeah, I, I I don't want to call it a rip off, but kind of sort of is it was very heavily inspired by ridley scott's alien (laughs) yes um but no they they talk about i was i I remember watching some like behind the scenes on it and you know they're talking about like the first like 10 minutes i think of the movie where they're kind of like going through um the space station or whatever it's kind of this one long shot now of course it's a lot more technical uh, because you know they got people in zero G and all this other kind of shit going on. Um, but the amount of times that they they talked about uh, how many times they had to do that and how many times they had to reverse or, mm. or rehearse to do this this ten minute you know long shot. Uh, you know, uh, I mean a whole twenty to thirty minute segment of just one long shot. Like I I couldn't even imagine the the skill and, and practice that went into it i love that sort of thing i know it's it's a detail that the general audience doesn't really look for um and when they do hear about like oh well, why would you do that just cut it like but i don't know what it, i don't know why i like it i just love i think because i'm such a fan of performance i really impressed by people who can you know remember lines and do stage plays and stuff like that my wife's an actress she does um stage from time to time so i'm always very impressed by that so to see it done in a film i'm like yeah like that's cool that you well, kind of even- yeah i don't know i'm very impressed by it <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even kind of newer. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, John Wick Four yet. Uh, no, I haven't. A, I really wanted though. You need to say towards uh, getting towards the uh, 
lasted 20 minutes of just like crazy action going on. And it, it never cuts away. And, and everything is so impressive. Oh, I'm losing you, Jason. Sorry, mate. I'm, just, I'm losing you for a second. It's, it's cutting out. I'm just going to fill the dead air with some dialogue while Jason gets his computer organized. Oh, no, his computer, his phone organized. I can hear starting to break a little bit. We just had a couple of tech tech glitches there. That's the the, the downside of recording from opposite sides, opposite sides of the world. But it was I'm, the first time it happened all day, so we're all good. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm surprised for as long as we've been going that that's the first time it happened. Um, mm. <laughs> but, um, but no, I was just saying there's there's this really crazy like overhead like one long shot in John Wick Four, where there's all this technical like choreography and you know fight scenes and and you know uh, gunfire and like all this shit going on and it's like probably twenty minutes long and mm. I'm just so impressed like how they could do that so I I have a lot of respect for <laughs> people that can pull that kind of shit off. Mm. I always think back to the the hallway fight scene in Daredevil. I know it's become a bit of a staple and a reference in popular culture now, but just yes. like, and then like every season, like, well, we did it once. We have to up the ante. So like, then they do the prison breakout with Punisher in season two. Um, yeah, and uh, and then even in She Hulk, there was a replicated version. There's a hallway fight for Daredevil as well. Like, I just love that sort of stuff. <laughs> well, I think I think this second season of daredevil is when the bikers are coming after him and they're going down the stairwell right yes and he's got the chain yeah yeah yeah, oh, yeah that shit is badass <laughs> <laughs> um well i think that pretty much i think we've said everything we want to say about tarantino it's been going for about two hours which is uh is no mean feat um i was gonna put the pressure on you and get you get you to give me your top five tarantino films but i won't be that cruel uh, do you have any uh, any final <laughs> thoughts on the man on on QT himself? I'll say well, so I'll I'll say easily. I can easily say my favorite Tarantino is uh, Django. Um, so that's kind of easy for me. Yeah, nice one. Uh, but but yeah, just uh, I mean, all around, man. Like I, it, there's really not anything bad that I can say about any of his projects. Uh, you know, there there are some that maybe a, a little more interesting or a little more entertaining than others, but uh, none of them that I, I dislike at all. And yeah, I, sure. I just think, I just think the dude, uh, whether he's writing, directing, you know, whatever he's doing, he's, he's got a vision for what he's doing and he knows what he's doing and everything is very intentional. And that's why I like him so much because it, there's, there's a thought put into every single second that's on that film. I mean, he has thought about everything that he could possible possibly think about. And if it's in there, it's got a purpose. Yeah. And, for sure. and that's what I, that's what I really like about him. So, and you used a phrase before, and I'm going to, I'm going to piggyback on that. He's unapologetic and not just in his like defense for his work, but just his approach to his work. Like there is like, you never feel like his work has been censored. You never feel like he's kind of, you know, kind of, you, you, we talked about like kind of easing up on the reins, but it's never, 
to kind of like, oh, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to make something too violent. It's kind of like it's always creatively driven. Um, and, he, yeah, he's a very unapologetic filmmaker. He just makes the story he wants to make and, you know, does it his way, um, which is, you know, I feel like it's becoming rarer and rarer, you know, as these studios get bigger and pump out like these, you know, mega blockbusters every year. So it's nice to see that kind of independent voice still there. Yeah, I mean, I the only the only other like kind of filmmaker that I can really reference like kind of recently that I that I feel like has kind of the same vibe to him is uh Christopher Nolan. Mm. I'm a big big Christopher Nolan fan and I feel like whatever you want to say about any of his movies whether you like them or you don't like them, you know, whatever um he's very intentional on yes. everything that you're doing. And I do, I do think, uh, because the first, I was going to kind of mention earlier, uh, Tarantino was kind of the first filmmaker that I had really experienced, like doing things out of chronological order, as far as the story goes, For sure, like kind of, kind of starting from the end or maybe working back or, you know, kind of jumping around and like leaving it to you to, put the pieces together, which happened first or whatever. Um, so that I think Tarantino was the first, you know, filmmaker that I had seen do that. And, and, you know, uh, Nolan is, is a big fan of doing that kind of thing too. Um, mm. just kind of like not, it, it doesn't have to be start to finish. Like this is how the film goes. Like, you know, let's jump around and you put it together and you figure it out. So it's- it's funny you bring up Nolan because the next um, episode of the director series we're doing on the show is going to be Christopher Nolan. I've actually got that booked in I think, to record next week. So we're going to be talking about his work, uh, me and a couple of buddies. So, um, But you kicked open the gates. You did the absolute first one. Excellent. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's always a pleasure to, to talk to you and Kev. But as I said, I've never really had the one-on-one time with you. So it's nice to to spend some time just, just you and I kind of talking about movies and as you said, finally, nothing, nothing horror, which is a, a bit of a change as well. Um, before we get out of here, tell them where they can find you. What's the, what's the podcast you do? Where can they find it? Why should they listen? Oh, well, it's called the Midnight Terrors Podcast. And you can find us pretty much anywhere that you stream. So Apple Music, Spotify, uh, you name it, you got it. We're pretty much everywhere. Um, and then you can always email us at the Midnight Terrors Podcast at Gmail. And yeah, uh, you can also search our socials. We're on Instagram, uh, we're on Facebook, and we actually just started our Midnight Terrors group on Facebook where we have a lot of cool discussions with everybody. Um, so that's a lot of fun. I've definitely taken really advantage good. of that audience and shamelessly plugged my show many times. Uh, <laughs> but I only you did. I only I only did Midnight Terror themed episodes. I didn't plug the other stuff. Uh, as I you say, away, buddy. every time you, so you can... <laughs> every time I cross paths with the boys, I always plug it. Go check out their show. It's legitimately wonderful. Um, Kevin, Jason do a great job, uh, and clearly love their movies. As you've heard for the last two hours, Jason, I've had a great time talking about Tarantino. So go follow their show, um, give them a like and a listen because it will be worth your time. Um, it's a brilliant show. I love your show. Um, 
If you want to support me and my show, guys, jump onto Instagram. I was a teenage film snob, uh, underscores between every single word. If you really want to support me, go buy a shirt. I don't make any money off them, but they're pretty cheap. I think they're like 20 bucks and you get 20% off. Just head to tpublic.com, search for I was a teenage film snob or jump in my links and find it there. Um, and that is pretty much going to do it. Uh, we, uh, As I mentioned, there's a Nolan episode coming out pretty soon, so you can look forward to that. Um, Kevin Jason will be on the show again soon for Halloween, hopefully. Um, but until then, uh, I want to thank Jason once again for being a part of the show. Thank you all for listening. Go give us a like, a subscribe, a thumbs up, a review. We've had no reviews still. Give us a review. One star, five star, I don't care. And as I say every single week on this show, guys, I was a teenage film snob, but I promised you I'm trying to be better. We'll see you next week. <laughs>